Welcome to the Great Bays Tennis Podcast. I'm Steve Smith. Episode 180. I think I need to do a 180 sometimes. You just turn and you go the opposite way. Got a great guest. We're going to call up Rachel Rohrbacher. She's 26 years young. She's based in Cincinnati, but she's from Tampa, Florida. She's the daughter of Lynn and Christy Rohrbacher. I worked with her from the age of 8 to 16 as a very impressive tennis background, but also now a very impressive pickleball background. So let me give her a call. Rachel Rohrbacher. Love that name. I'll review why I love that name. Strong syllables. Hey, Steve. Rachel Rohrbacher, thank you for being a guest on the Great Bays Tennis Podcast. Of course. Thank you for having me. And you're in Cincinnati. Yes, Cincinnati, Ohio. With former tennis player and now world championship pickleball player, world champion ship player with Orlando squeeze. Now let me tell you the listeners, I was uh, talking to your mom on the phone and she said, Rachel's starting to play pickleball. I said, Oh, that's great. At that time I think, well, everybody started to play pickleball. And then someone told me to listen to the tennis podcast called tennis sucks. So I tune in and just a few minutes in, um, I have it written down in my notes, paraphrasing perhaps. Um, She's awesome. What an amazing draft pick. Have you seen her play? It goes on and on. And I go, so I have to really get into this. Um, The real thing, she's awesome. Here you go. Have you seen her play? Amazing. Unbelievable. She was such a smart draft pick. And boy, has she lived up to the draft pick. But I I think we should cover both sports. Uh, But let's talk a little bit about the podcast, Tennis Sucks, because the gentleman, um, who stated that I, I don't remember his name, but he's one of the founders. And when he does say that he's asked about it, the first thing he said, I've heard him talk about it twice is that tennis is a beautiful game, but in a lot of ways, I agree with some of the points he makes. Um, but tennis not being such a healthy culture. I know you've, you've obviously you, you lived it where yeah. kind of the I me scenario, the fun factor, it's such a difficult sport. You know, I think also the homeschooling, Sometimes it can be too much, but, you know, if I were to say, be asked, you know, some reasons why would you say, Hey, you know, that's teenage lingo. You know, you get people's attention though. And you say, you know, tennis sucks. You know, there's, there's like, yeah. there's like, there's no backboards being built anymore because backboards don't make money. Um, the, there's no ladders. It used to be, there'd be a citywide ladder I really with parents, you know, they're paying more money for tournaments. The fees have gone up so much the entry fees. And now they're playing, you know, no ad scoring, tiebreakers, uh, a 10-point tiebreaker for the third. Consolation sets her to four, no ad. Um, you know, there's, it's, there's certainly an, an upside, but I, I think what we're trying to do with um, our free educational content, tennis is, needs to be more accessible and less expensive. But why don't you comment yeah. on that a little bit? Um, for the tennis sucks part like the podcast um the co-host he's very blunt so he'll tell you how it he feels for sure but he's very good at looking at you know both sides like you said he says it's a graceful sport but gets into reasons of why he think he believes it sucks um i think it's kind of hard for me i mean it's i'm in a great position to look back on my tennis career because i did live that but 
it's um, hard for me to say tennis sucks because tennis has given me not only one but two careers, and it's um, I'm super grateful for the opportunities it's given me in my life. Um, it was my whole life for the majority of it, so um, I think that it comes with a lot of hardships, um, familial, mental, physical, and um, developmentally. Um, while there are so many positives that go into being a tennis player growing up and being a full-time like you know homeschooled which is what I was um all throughout high school there are lots of good things but also um hard things as well um I think like I, I don't I actually didn't know that they made consolation sets before now I'm very out of the ten, junior tennis world nowadays um but I know that when I was in there, everybody pulled out a consolation. So maybe that's why they changed that. Um, but I think that looking at junior tennis players now, when I do go by the courts and see them, I feel like there's a lot less uh, commitment and talent. I, will, I don't know talent-wise, but how about hard workers? Um, I feel like the landscape of junior tennis has completely changed. I don't know if you agree with that or not. Yeah, no, I, I think I with... I think you're at the crossroads where high school tennis just faded away. And I know some kids are certainly, we're still helping some high school players. And I think it's great to have the experience to be part of a team, but it used to be everybody played high school tennis. And, you know, that's, that's one thing that's, that's a downer. I think also too, the, the difficulty to learn how to play tennis and then the competency issues, you know, a lot of times the parents, they don't really have consumer knowledge. They don't really know, you know, they're blindly writing checks, but a lot of times mm -hmm. the coaches, and I think we could branch over to pickleball. Um, a lot of times the coaches don't have product knowledge. If they had product knowledge, they could produce and, you know, you wouldn't have all these palm up serves. And, and I, I do think that yeah. uh, the gentleman has the podcast and the co-host, again, he starts off at tennis is a beautiful game, but the culture, and then he did mention some close friends or a close friend and, and how somebody or a couple of people really close to him, uh, it didn't turn out too well for them. Um, I said one time mm -hmm. to Patrick Gibson's father, you know, Patrick, he just played in the Australian Open. So he's he's been an achiever, someone I've known a long time. And I said to his dad, I said, you know, tennis um, eats people up and spits them out. And he says, so is life. But I, and I, I think yeah. that's, uh, and I, there's a lot of positives to say about pickleball. But I think one thing about pickleball that it can be, addressed as a negative is actually it's actually too easy and i think uh, we'll talk about how you know your pathway and i really believe and sam query said it that if you have a really solid understanding of tennis that you're you know like he, he said 90 percent prepared for pickleball and i i've seen so much pickleball yeah. instruction i was in florida the last two years i was in florida you know my backyard there was pickleball courts a 64 acre public park mm -hmm. in fact i saw um Ryler DeHart and his wife, Megan, they were there one mm -hmm. night playing and everybody, just people just parking lots jammed with people lining up to play pickleball. And there's a lot to be said for that. Um, but it, to me, it looks like the wild, wild west. It reminds me of tennis in the seventies when tennis boomed, everybody and their yeah. brother was teaching pickleball. And it's like, everybody's, you know, I shouldn't say everybody. It seems like so many people are like, this is my angle. This is what you have to do when you play pickleball. And, the University of Virginia was just visiting where I'm based uh, in the mountains in Virginia. They just came for a two-day retreat. And we watched the girls play tennis one session and play pickleball another session. And some of them never played pickleball. 
And it was fun to watch them play. I mean, it looked like a tennis workout because they were, they, yeah. were, they were good tennis players. I, to, um, to, to comment on your thing of saying pickleball is easy. Um, I think that, you know, after playing now competitively for a year and teaching for probably two years, I think that tennis is harder to pick up and learn the foundations. Obviously, as I begin with you, I mean, it takes a very long time to um, get the foundations of tennis and the technique right so you can play. Um, pickleball is easier to pick up, but as the level gets higher, I think tennis is easier. The strategy of tennis is much easier to execute. And once you have the technique and the athleticism, you're able to um, apply certain strategies relative to your ability in games. But pickleball, I think, is you need very specific shots to be um, good. And the strategy is way harder to execute. Um, so I think those are like it's a misconception. I don't know if you saw the uh, the past tournament um, two weeks ago, Dini Bouchard tried to play and she just like lost to someone who's ranked like 50 or something, like got beat very bad and um, did not do well in doubles. So, and Jeannie Bouchard is a class, class active uh, woman WT player, right? So it's, um, I think that kind of also put to bed that debate of like any pro tennis player could pick it up and be good. No, I'm glad you said that. I think at one point lacrosse was the fastest growing sport in America. I think pickleball maybe, maybe first now. And it's good that young people are playing. I, I think tennis, pickleball can help tennis. I think that we've missed the boat. I think that tennis people, we should have been much more creative. And there's, you know, like say mini tennis and, you know, people my age you know, playing with the modern rackets, the, the ball obviously travels, almost travels twice as fast as it used to with wooden rackets. Uh, but, you know, say yeah. someone plays lacrosse. I went to a boarding school in New England and we all had lacrosse sticks. And even the kids who couldn't, who never didn't play lacrosse like myself, you know, we could catch and throw. But that didn't, you know, so to become really good at lacrosse is like anything. It's just a major investment of time. Um, but I do think that, you know, pickleball, there's, you know, a lot of times people play it the first time. It's like they're swinging a fly swatter. And I, I do think that what tennis people should do, tennis coaches, tennis teachers, you know, prevention of injury, you know, to play either mm -hmm. sport is deal first and foremost with the prevention of injury. And I think that if you're taught to play tennis, it's going to be more of a bridge to play pickleball than if you switch that around. If people just play, For sure. they, play, they, they play pickleball without any instruction. Um, and that's because of that like technique and foundation piece, right? Like if you have that already for tennis, it's easier to just pick up a pickleball paddle. But if you haven't played tennis and have been playing pickleball, it will not translate over. But I think some lessons from pickleball that we could touch upon coming back to the podcast, Tennis Sucks, is, um, I mean, it's great that it's, and perhaps it's growing to the point where that's changed, but it seems to me that it's like it, it's been more of a casual pickup sport. It's, it hasn't been uh, snobby where there's clicks. I mean, people, mm -hmm. they'll play with anybody and they rotate and it's like they play to 11 and uh, it just seems like tennis, many times groups get caught in their foursome and and uh, it's not as social as it should be. For sure. Um, that's like a really tough one for me, like, because I am used to that tennis culture of, um, you know, you have your three other people you're with. So you have uh, for doubles or if you're with one other person for practice and singles and like no one really bothers you because they know that's your court. 
Um, but I also have been a very highly competitive player in both. So maybe this is my culture and neither sport has been socials for me. So I think this is where I get a little bit of confusion because when I started playing pickleball, it's like pick up and open play and it's um, super social. And so if you get a group of four time where like people are playing open play, they get super upset if they can't like rotate and like, it's kind of a weird thing because I t- I'm taking it seriously and that's my practice. But these people are like, this is a social thing. So it's kind of a hard thing for me. Um, it's been challenging to adjust to. Um, but I figured out a proper balance um, as I've continued playing. But that's like a very valid point. They are very different. Um, like, I, I, I just, yeah, I think, I think pickleball, more at, the, more at the recreational level. I mean, obviously, we'll get into that. But you're playing at a professional level. I mean, you have to go about it. Obviously, quote unquote, you got you to gotta be a pro. To be a pro, right. to be a pro, and but on the recreational side, um, I think on the tennis side, not at the, at the high competitive level, but if everybody played with someone once a week that was at a lower level, we'd have so much more tennis played. But I think a lot of times mm-hmm. in tennis, it's like, well, you know, I mean, I'm talking really like three, five club players to, you know, call call somebody up who's a three zero and say, hey, let me play with you once a week, and if we do that, I can help you out and. In next next year, you could move up to the three five league. But I think more of that should take place. But I, I think it again, it's it's too clicky. Yeah, I agree. With um, let's go back. Let's let's start with tennis. Um, you played before I met you. Uh, you started at age six. I met you at age eight. Uh, mm-hmm. I tell people, you know, if you're going to ask Roger Feder about what he did at age eight. And I share the, a story about his first coach and working on static balance and what his mother said, where he stood in one place on balance with long follow throughs. That yourself at age eight, is, uh, this probably would uh, be refreshing or interesting for you to hear. But at age six, um, you had already had, you, by the time I met you, you could already play. I think you had a, a Russian coach, correct, initially? Do you remember that Croatian. way back when? Croatian, okay. Croatian, yeah. His name is Vlado. He was um, at like our local public court and he was great. Um, he was, he's an awesome guy. Um, and he, he started me and uh, another local girl who I live close to. And um, yeah. And his son actually ended up teaching at a higher level as well, but he was definitely just like up again, our coach. Um, he knew that. <laughs> I remember on your mother used to come during the weekdays, but on your dad on the first Saturday shows up and we had the dollar clinic. I guess we could set the stage. Um, Hillsborough Community College for the listeners. It's an amazing place in Tampa. It's right next to where the Yankees play baseball. I mean, you yeah. can actually, the, the back of the facility, you can look through the fence and see that where the Yankees train um, for spring baseball. Beautiful stadium across the street, the Bucks. That's where their stadium is. It's a college campus. There's 12 clay courts, 16 hard courts. We had a large classroom, a cafeteria, weight room, gym. Um, it was a pretty interesting setting. So we had this dollar clinic every Saturday morning. And actually, you can get more people to come to a dollar clinic than a pre-clinic because, you know, people talk about it. Hey, it's a dollar clinic. So your dad shows up and he just wanted you to be drilling and playing with more players. And I said, well, you have to be filmed. And initially, um, your dad said, no, no, she doesn't, she doesn't need to be filmed. She just needs to play, play more. And obviously he's right in that sense, but I said, no, no, he needs to be filmed. I said, come back next week. And it was, 
you know, two, maybe three Saturdays and we had so many courts. And, I, and so you'd be there for the daughter clinic. And then I said, no, 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 she can play. I'll, I'll organize the court and she can play with this person. He goes, well, what about training with a group? And I, and you know, I, I was firm, he was firm. And I said, no, no, she has to be filmed. Um, with, uh, let me go off on a tangent. Your dad, I used to say, your father, Lynn, mm -hmm. I said, I said, he's an ex-Marine. And he's, he would correct me and say, no, no, a former Marine. And mm -hmm. um, I have a, a memory of, and I don't remember your mother and father driving a convertible except on really cold days. Did you have a car, that, like a collector's car that you kept in the garage or something? No, it was my dad's car. Okay, so. It was like a BMW. Right, so anyway, it's freezing out in Tampa, which doesn't happen very often. And I'm, I'm a wimp for cold weather. And I just remember your dad, I mean, it was really cold. I guess that's why other, the other times, it was the only time you put the top down, it was freezing out. And yeah. uh, you'd be in the backseat, he'd bring you to practice. And I'm just thinking, it's so cold out. He's driving the convertible with the top down. But uh, I'll go back to the video, but here's another story I tell about your father where um, and I took a group of kids not too many years ago, it was right before the pandemic, and we played the Jesuit school at HCC, and those backboards we had, they knocked them down. And that was just terrible that they knocked, especially that big tennis backboard we had. Um, so you wouldn't remember this, I don't think, but every Saturday morning, the demographics of racquetball for sure, definitely people my age, but, but these gentlemen, they weren't acting like gentlemen. They would be playing handball. And I, I just, I thought it was good because they were so intense and I go, okay, the kids are going to hear a little, hear a little profanity. You know, you're not going to go to a junior tournament one time and not hear profanity. You hear the S word. The yeah, F word. So, for sure. you know, every once in a while, a, a, a mom or dad would complain. They'd go in and tell someone, that was working the front desk and they'd come out and no success. These guys would just be swearing, yelling at each other. So your dad comes over and I never really saw your dad get mad, but I did see this intensity and it was like a movie scene. So he comes over and he tells those guys, he goes, Hey, there's children here. Cut it. Quit swearing. Just cut it. And they just, this is a, he walked away and they just, they were just, they were right back to yelling and swearing at each other. And then he came, then he came back, he came back and I couldn't believe it. He just yelled a little bit louder, had his arms crossed. And he said, Hey, I came over here once. I'm not coming over here again. You don't want me to come over here again. And then from that point forth, anytime your father was there, those guys wouldn't swear. And I mean, if there was one of them, there was like 20, there was like 20. Yeah. But uh, you must've got uh, some of your toughness from your dad. I mean, you probably, uh, faced a little bit of that intensity, correct? <laughs> definitely, definitely. With my the, dad, you don't want to mess with my dad. <laughs> with, uh, I ask kids, uh, raise your hand if you've ever got your parents upset. And every last kid raises their hand. But, <laughs> so anyway, your mother, Christy, she's a fitness trainer. She comes by and she says, and she was just teasing. She said, I may have to get a divorce, but my daughter is going to be filmed. And so anyway, we made the film. We would still have a copy of it. I would guess that you were back in the the DVD days. We went from VHS to DVD, and now we just send uh, private YouTube clips. Um, what's your yeah. What's your recollection of being videotaped the first time? I do not remember that at all, to be yeah. honest. Yeah, with the um, but your mother, 
you know, it was, it was well technique. And then, she, you know, then obviously your parents saw the video. And next thing I know is that you were training with us full time. And um, your mother helped out so many ways. Um, with We had the largest program in Tampa, but we didn't really have that many local players. If you stop think about it, we had, we had the coaches, kids. We had, because it was a public facility, we operated in the spirit of the public. We had a hardship kids. And we had the junior college girls, which the rules allowed them right. to practice with our team. That's another whole conversation. Um, then we had boarding students. Back in the day, the rule was um, you could take a postgraduate year and take the whole year off. And we would always have, um, it was almost always boys that took the year off. And they ended up playing small college tennis for the most part. I mean, I'd say straight across the board. But... Um, yeah, so there was that group. And then we had local players. A lot of the local players, you know, they wouldn't want to come in and and do what we were doing. I, I remember one uh, lady who, she worked as an umpire. She had two daughters that started much later than you, and they went on and played small college tennis. Um, for our listeners, uh, Rachel played in the SEC conference, South University of South Carolina. But the mother, we had people you know, hitting off the cone and drop hitting. And she came right up to me and she said, this is so belittling. I am not letting my daughters do this. And, and she left and then, but she came back later, but it was like maybe a year and a half later, two years. And she had just, that wasn't my mom. No, 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 not at all. Okay. I just wanted to make sure you, I was like, no, wait, that wasn't my mom. No, 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 no. Is this another mom? She saw what we were doing. No, your mom, she was into it. She came to the, remember she came to the privates, Reagan, she would come prepared with an umbrella and crayons and toys. And yeah, he'd, ru he'd run on the court and Coco, your dog uh, on a leash. And uh, you would thump your brother and uh, a little bit of tough love, a little love tap. And right. no, no. So, no, you got into it hook, line and sinker, but you had to change from palm up and change from Western to Eastern. And, and yeah. that, that's not easy, but you were eight and, uh, and of course, you know, you, you were, you wanted to compete. You wanted to, wanted to play, but, uh, but yeah, you did the hard yards with the technical side, but, um, no, your mom would, I remember, uh, the kids that stayed at the tennis house, the boarding students, we'd all, we'd have clear tubs that they would put their personal items in their food. You know, the first thing a 14 year old boy is going to do is buy some pop tarts and right. just buy junk. <laughs> and then I remember she used to help the girls on the tennis team with fitness and, and she told them they could have one cheat day. And it was just amazing. Every time they went to a restaurant, they'd all eat, look at each other and go, this is my cheat day. And just, just, just laugh. But um, they, uh, but no, it, from a technical standpoint, um, you know, I remember telling your father, I said, no, no, this is going to take a couple of years. And it's, it's just a long, long process. But I, you know, I yeah. know I, your parents were in after, uh, after the video um, but it, you know, it's a lot of times people just understand, well, what do you mean? We got, you got to make a video and no, no, we, we document development. So then we, we, we certainly, you could dig through the archives and find that tape that we made for you when you were much younger. Um, yeah, I the, would love that. The, um, <laughs> no, but we've watched you, uh, play tennis on YouTube or excuse me, I should say play pickleball. And, you know, I made a list of 10 points. Um, could you guess what some of those points would be? Some 10 tennis points that are helping you in pickleball from a technical or tactical standpoint. 
definitely my Eastern grip. Yeah. That's number one. That's what I lead with whenever someone, because you know, it's funny, like a lot of people that I play pickleball with, they're, they they don't complain, but they're like, yeah, like, you know, it's weird. Um, they had to switch from a semi or a Western and, um, and I, they're like, yeah, doesn't that thing? I'm like, no, I actually like had an Easter grip in tennis, so I didn't have to change anything. So that was really nice. Um, tabletop return and come in. Um, just like hand speed up at the net, I feel like has helped not only my hand speed, but, um, just like what you always made me go to the net and play points at the net. Like my fuel at the net is very good. Um, which translates to up on the kitchen line to third shot drop. Um, what are, I can't think of like too many other ones. I'm interested to hear what you wrote down. Uh, tabletop return. Let's go through that. It's a linear pattern. Um, it's like the volley with the added follow through a few years ago where Fetter was coming in, uh, the saber attacking off the second serve. Joel Trucker was recently, um, on our podcast, he's, you know, prolific, a high, high profile writer within the tennis world. And he said, the Sabre has been around for a hundred years. You know, the chip and charge come forward. Um, actually, you know, I remember who I trained, but I don't remember who I trained with who. Um, would you know, you know, Ryder to heart for sure. Do you know, you yeah, know, do you yeah. know, you know, Megan Broderick? Um, did she have a brother? Yeah, yeah, My, Michael. Um, I think I remember Michael Broderick. Yeah, so more than Ma- Megan. Megan, really good athlete. I mean, she was the family of family of runners, and I can remember her working with Division One athletes or guys that were trying to get ATP points, and she would help them from a running standpoint. Uh, she played at Kentucky, then took a fifth year, and just because of her time, she could run cross country. But I remember that she could she could hit. We, you know, we have all this on film. What a, she was a great athlete. She was top ten junior in the U.S. And she would play tabletop approach shots. So we do a coach's clinic, and you know, so she's out. She's demonstrating. And I said, "Let me show you a shot that she doesn't play." And you know, a conventional approach volley, uh, she would play for sure. A volley she would play, but not taking the return. Um, I'd be fair enough. Say so you could take the return, come in as a, as a tabletop, but not play it as an approach shot where you can keep the trajectory really low. And I said, I said, well, here's a shot she doesn't play. And I remember her father, uh, Tim, coming in and said afterwards, he said, my wife, Sandy, she's really mad at you for saying that in front of all those people. And, mm-hmm. I, and I said, well, um, you know, it really comes right down to it. You know, every day is not a golden day. And if you're, you know, how's it go? I don't know the key to success, but I know the key to failure, make everybody happy. Um, and Ryler to heart, I used to show a film to Ryler. I said, Ryler, let's watch this again. And this guy does a great job in the tennis channel, um, the famous Armitrage family, Prakash Armitrage. So Ryler lost him at Kalamazoo. And, you know, he went on and, you know, had a, a, a very good pro career, you know, like Ryler did as well. I mean, Ryler's a good player. If you get get to play on Arthur Ashe against Ralph and Nadal, you're a pretty good player. So, yeah. But that you know, I used to show Ryler that clip of Prakash. I go, you don't play this shot. Um, it's it's amazing. Um, we were just watching Taylor Fritz, who's so good, top ten in the world. He starts so well with the serve and the return. But you know, he gets Djokovic to hit a floater, and he 
letting the ball bounce. And a lot of it has to do with the grip. Doesn't have an Eastern grip. I mean, he's a great player, but the Eastern grip really gives you options. You know, you can turn, yeah. like say Federer would be in the ready position and you can, you know, steal the A's, take the wall to the ball. Um, but so that when we say tabletop, uh, we do feel there's a lot of dying arts, lost arts in, uh, in tennis. But the loops, how you have the racket up high on both sides, um, you go through a ritual on your serve. I don't know if you're aware of that, but when you play uh, the clips that we've looked at, you bounce the ball or you go yeah. through a movement like you're looking to serve and then you just turn and drop hit a forehand. Um, yeah. So um, they just, I just changed from closed stance on the serve. And when I first started, it just carried with me because like, you know, when you, you bounce the ball and you put your hand, your left hand under your right, um, that's how I would start. But to get a little more action on it, I changed it to an open stance. So it's like I'm hitting a forehand as the serve. Um, but it is, I have to go back and forth because they're, they're tinkering with some rules on the serve, which is really frustrating. But, um, but yes, I definitely do do that whenever I'm close stance and everyone makes fun of me for it in the pickleball world. Say that again. What do you do with your stance? Um, so, you know, a serve is like closed stance and, right. and tennis and can be in pickleball. So I started with it closed and um, to actually get a little bit more action on it, meaning depth and a little bit more pace um, and uh, arc on the ball. I moved to open stance. So it's like I'm hitting an open stance forehand because you have to make on the serve. You can't make contact higher than your waist. So I just like drop the ball and um hit it kind of like a forehand cross court, which has helped me way more um, than sticking to a closed stance, which it was very hard for me to do because still mentally I'm not, I'm still tennis brain sometimes, um, not full pickleball brain yet. So <laughs> I've been doing some homework for this podcast. I, I saw where uh, the rule on serving, um, you have to keep your hand like at waist level and then drop the ball. Correct. Yes. Yeah, so the original, and I won't get too much into this because it's ever changing. Um, so the original and still rules were that you have to make contact below your waist. Um, this year, they started our first tournament out with changing a rule to um, we have to have our palms down and we have to drop it and hit it out of the air. So um, we can't like lift our hand or toss the ball when we have our palm down. It has to just like release. And um, it makes you feel super unathletic and it makes uh, a referee's call super uh, subjective. So one ref might call you for a fault. And if you do it wrong, you lose the point. Um, there's no second serve or uh, they just make you lose the point. So it's been, a, it's been a little bit of a debate in pickleball since that tournament. It's not very well liked. Um, and I don't really understand the reason for doing it. There's not, it's not like anybody's really acing anybody in pickleball. I guess I think some people would disagree with me because they don't want the serve to be a weapon, but I think like that's part of your talent and what's in your back. Like if you can make anything a weapon, like that's your ability to do so. And if it's legal, so it's, it's a little bit of a debate right now. With, uh, yeah, a couple, a couple other things. Um, the, besides the grips, the unit turn, like when mm -hmm. you're moving to the corner, I mean, you, you have your, the, the left hand on your forehand. It's so important. Now you can't always do that. Cause when you're on the dead run, you pump your arms. 
But if mm-hmm. you have if you have the opportunity to uh, get in the corner and set your left hand on the racket, it'll help you have a relax the muscles in your say a right hand or relax the muscles in your right arm. Have a short compact swing. I mean, keeping the swing on the same side of the body. Um, with I I've said this just observing. I did go to one instructional clinic, but I've just observed so much pickleball that the kitchen. Um, it definitely promotes swing volleys more than conventional volleys. Why don't you comment on that? Yeah, that that's uh, when you first start <clears throat> going from a tennis player to a pickleball player. You know, naturally at the net, you're hitting volleys like you've been taught. Especially um, coming from tennis, Smith, um, I we were taught to you made us like have very very short swings, like no swing on the volley at all. Like it's just like a punch you meet the ball um so going to pickleball it was super it felt wrong um hitting quote-unquote what's in my head a ball out of the air is a volley but technically in pickleball it's uh there are so many different types of balls you hit out of the air because of how small the court is and where people where you play it at um so it was a big adjustment but I, so and it was an adjustment that i actually found to like to make because i like hitting the ball as hard as I can and the swing allows me to do that. Well, no, I, I just, I see you play and I just re- remember so many things. Um, it, it just takes a minute when you've been spent so much time, I mean, age eight to 16, right. um, with the ratio of balls hit. So younger players always going to hit more ground strokes and volleys. And then for the listeners, right. you know, Rachel grew up in a program where if you served in volleys, if you served and stayed back, the whistle would blow and you'd be sent to the technical courts. And no one wanted to go to the technical courts because people would rather play doubles. And, you know, we would play one bounce doubles. And, you know, way back when Agassi really helped revolutionize tennis in so many ways. Because Agassi, when he came on the scene, he did not hit a conventional ball. He just swung at everything. But I remember where it was like taboo to have someone play a swing volley. But no, in watching you play, I think even on the backhand side, you could lift up more on the swing volley. Uh, um, yeah, you just can't keep going forward. You have to stop at that line. So you you can't use a right. moment, you can't use a momentum source of power. You have to stop at that line. So it just forces people to um, play a swing volley. But you know, you're fortunate that you through all those years of having short, compact swings. Yeah, and um, I mean, it not only forces you to stop at that line, but you, a huge adjustment coming from tennis to pickleball, especially because I was someone who stayed up on the baseline in tennis. I took balls off the rise. I was like, I tried to get to the net. That was my game. I I drove and um, I wasn't like a stay 10 feet off the baseline and make our points 50 shots long. I did not do that as a tennis player. Definitely don't do that as a pickleball player. Um, So the translation like is, it's quite different on timing. Um, you have to wait for the ball. Like you, it's such a weird adjustment, but you have to wait like an extra second or two. It feels like a lifetime, but, um, you can't rush it. And, you know, if you watch Jeannie Bouchard play when in her first, uh, tournament, which I think, I assume she was practicing, who knows? Um, but she was just rushing everything. Like the ball would bounce and she'd be trying to take it off the bounce and you can't do that pickleball. So it's a weird um, not only that kitchen momentum piece, but the timing piece of like trying to get to that ball and rushing it. Yeah, to come back to that, I, um, you know, I do think there's 
you know, they always that issue of respect. I think it's disrespectful for people to just think that overnight they can play high level, high level pickleball. But with, um, again, the list, um, I told Yvonne, who I work with and sharing information, um, our free content is say, for example, you hold the line many times where, um, you don't play to the open court, you'll play, you play up the line and then you close in where you have the open court. So there's tactics involved as well. Um, yeah, first opportunity to go forward. I mean, the competitive spirit, I think a lot of times, obviously just like in singles or doubles to the middle solves the riddle till you get the right ball. Um, yeah, 100%. I mean, yeah, pickleball, you got to have the soft hands. I mean, you know, it really forces you to play what we would call in tennis, that the movement for a half volley, you know, where you're, you're just trying to keep, yeah. you're just trying to keep the ball low. I think you use the term dinks, right? Yeah. But I mean, there are still, I mean, there's some shots I call a half volley. And um, again, it feels so wrong because I know in tennis, like a half volley is kind of death. Like you, you don't really want to be hitting a half volley. I wouldn't say you want to be hitting a half volley in pickleball either, but the court is so small. And when you're caught in transition, it happens a lot more often than in tennis. So um, you had to get used to that uncomfortableness. And it's actually something that happens um, more commonly. And sometimes like you just have to be able to get out of it. Um, it's more of a defensive thing, in my opinion, when I'm doing a half volley, it's not offensive. I think a lot of people would agree with that, but I don't know. Yeah, I think with uh, another another thing, too, with the fixed wrist. So on your forehand, mm-hmm. you know, many times now in tennis, what's gone away is teaching the follow through. You know, everything, well, no, that's not how the pros play it, but people don't use high-speed film. If you use high-speed film, you just, you know, to slow the players down to show them what really happens in that tracking motion, the hitting zone. So what we do very quickly is we'll tell people, okay, let's have you hit a forehand volley, conventional volley, and okay, hit, hold, and the wrist is fixed. Now hit a ground stroke where you're going to relax the swing over your front shoulder, relax from your elbow, not from your wrist. But then when you tell people, okay, let's work on hitting a off-pace passing shot or a topspin lob, and you do this when you play pickleball to get more spin on the forehand side, you bring the racket where it comes up over your, over your shoulder. Um, and, but you know, I just, there's so many things um, that, you know, if people are taught fundamentally sound tennis, I told, you know, a group of high school kids, I said, you know, one of the reasons you want to really learn to play tennis right now is it's a bonus because now there's a second sport you can play. You can play tennis, yeah. you can play tennis and pickleball. Um, yeah, Absolutely. You know, some people refer to that as a reverse follow through. Um, one thing, Rachel, on these podcasts to help out tennis people go back a little bit to tennis. Um, I can say this is that your parents followed my advice. Chris, you had the, the, the privilege, the, the bonus of growing up in Florida where the weather's nice yeah. and there's both hard courts and clay courts. But I remember telling your parents that you didn't really need to leave Florida until the last year of 16s. And then you ended up getting a scholarship. I said, no, no, your daughter's athletic. She's competitive. She just keeps working on skills. Um, I do think many parents, um, they travel all over the place for, you know, tens, twelves, fourteens. Why don't you comment on that? What's your recollection of that? Yeah. I mean, like you said, um, when I went to you at age eight, um, I think, I don't know how many years, I think it was years plural. Um, at least two where I was just like, 
we're just doing everything for technique. I mean, I still got to hit balls, but like it was a lot of cone work, a lot of basket hit, like not too many balls like coming at me um, from another person until I got everything down, which makes sense looking at it. It's a lot of hard work, but, um, but you, you were like no tournaments until I get my technique down, which looking back was, I mean, the best thing you could have done because I wasn't worried about winning you know, because when you're out, when it comes down to it, especially if you're as competitive as I am, if you're going to be on the court, you're going to find a way to win, whether that's the right technique or wrong technique, especially at a young age. So um, I didn't really play any tournaments until probably 12, 13. I could be wrong, but I don't think I played many 12. Um, maybe that was when I started getting into it a little bit. 14 was when um, I started playing more tournaments. Am I remembering that right? Yeah, I, um, I'll, I'll put it on our Facebook page. Um, we, someone, um, Barry Hen, he wrote a, a, I think it's like 80 pages of narrative, uh, on our program. And you had, you wanted, you came back from winning the Florida open, uh, a national tournament. And it's, it's kind of, you know, I called you out we went through all the basics and I said, all right, national champion, you got to work on this still and work on that still. Um, but yeah, I, I need to ask you, um, because my son Connor, when he started to play pro tennis, you know, everybody has to find a way to pay their bills. So I sold the real estate I had where I could house players. So your last two years, um, you could talk to us about that. I didn't work with you those last two years. Um, but we always say like the Jesuits just give us the first seven years. I spent, you know, a little bit over that length of time with you. But your father, I remember he really got into filming matches. And then yeah. in, in doing some homework for this podcast, I ended up um, seeing many uh, on many clips on YouTube from way back when. And uh, you know, not sure if if it was a private YouTube channel or how I how I ended up getting this. There was just quite a few matches of you playing yeah, on film. I know what you're talking about. And your, I remember your father saying. Uh, that he, he, now he under he, he said I, I really understand what you say now when you say winning's not confusing it's totally confusing because you went through a phase where you know it was just gr- drilled into you that when the ball's short you go forward of course when you're yeah. 13 14 years old you go forward to lose at a faster rate because you're going to get passed and you're going to get lobbed um, I mean you used to really hit right. heavy approach shots and you 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 would. Um, do just that. We just made a, a, a pretty deep study of this uh, Alex Mickelson, who's done so well at uh, the Australian Open, and um, Mark Walpole, who spent um, two years going through our training program. Where you get a college degree many years ago. He did it with his partner Nash. They did a lot of hard yards with Alex Mickelson, and you know he stays in the pocket. He doesn't run around his backhand from anywhere in the court. You know, you, right. you can run around your backhand, but wait till you're inside the court where it truly is in the offensive area of the red zone. Um, right. But yeah, winning's not confusing. It's totally confusing. So I think in those developmental years, um, the, the parents listening to this is your parents, they got a really good handle on the big picture where it's, yeah. it's, it's not so much what you do in the 10s, 12s, 14s, but by, if you want to play college tennis, by the time you're you know, going to be a junior in high school, you definitely need to be on the radar where your, your tennis is improved. And, um, but when you won that Florida open, that was at that time, it was, uh, you weren't leaving the state to play other tournaments, but yet right. being in Florida, you certainly had a chance to, uh, like say at the 
Orange Bowl or the Eddie Her. I remember one year you went pretty deep in the Eddie Her, where um, you had a chance to play people from outside of Florida, outside of the United States as well. But, um, I, yeah, in the 14s I did. Um, I got to the finals and played a Croatian and another one. Uh, I don't know where yeah. she was from. Maybe they were both Croatian. But um, yeah, I didn't start traveling, you know, financially also too, right? Being in Florida is such an advantage because it's its own um, region. Um, I think there's only like, I think California is even split in two. So Texas and Florida are the only states that its own region and California is split up into two because it's so large. But, um, I think that's a huge advantage. Um, I don't know if, uh, I think that like that helped me a lot, especially like making it for my parents to be able to take me. Um, but you know, when I don't know if times have changed though, I think they have where kids can start taking official visits, um, my sophomore year maybe now so i mean maybe the times have changed a little where you got to be on the radar maybe a little earlier but if you're in a big region i think it's not necessary to have to travel and especially florida's got most of the nationals in it now so if you're in florida i mean you're kind of set i like the line from tracy austin she says it about pro tennis and college tennis um you know parents need to realize that you know top level coaches you won't find them. They'll find you. Does that, yeah. make, does that make sense? So you're, you know, it's totally. not, you know, people will ask, well, Steve, you know, all these coaches, could you make a phone call? I go, yeah, I can. But, um, you know, they want you, they'll reach out. You know, well, you gotta, you have to, you have to have a lot of wins. I mean, it, it used to be tennis recruiting before it was the USTA ranking and then it was tennis recruiting. And now it's at the UTR. Um, yeah. With, then also to HCC, I mean, 28 tennis courts. So the, Boarding students, you got to the point where you could play, you're playing with a lot of boys. You got to the point too, and this had, it was tough on the girls. I mean, one year they won the nationals. I think they were in the finals three times. Uh, the team got better and better. You remember Chad Burial, your uh, mother yeah. was helping Chad as well. And, um, you know, Chad just recently won a national tournament at the division two level. But with that, yeah. um, it was pretty tough on the girls because, uh, you know, we'd have some in-house matches and the girls would play, you know, someone like yourself when you were, you know, when you were 13, 14, you would have been in the lineup on that ACC team. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the the level of play got better and better. Typically the depth wasn't there um, at the five and six spots. So you, you certainly had plenty of people to play. Um, but I do think that, um, you know, that's, that's one thing that the UTR was supposed to do is matches were supposed to be ageless and genderless. So the boys, you know, really Billie Jean King said that forever, even into the 14s, the boys and girls could play together. There doesn't need to be two different divisions. By the time you get into the lat, like last year, 16s. Yeah. You know, the, the, you know, the boys end up having a little little bigger serve. Um, But tell us those last two years um, when, you know, you spent quite a bit of time with us, but th- those two last two years, um, who you worked with and how that helped you get to South Carolina. Yeah, I think um, I worked with David Hinkle and um, a place in a place called Brand- in Brandon, um, Florida, called BSAC. I don't know if it's still called that or even still there. I'm still very close with Damon, who's actually my pickleball coach. Um, but he he was just great. He kind of it was perfect because he was the exact opposite of you, which is like, I needed you for that foundation and 
for the beginning of my career. And then Damon was like, I mean, he definitely was not much emphasis on technique. He knows it, but I don't think he chooses to want to be that type of coach. He's like very, he got me fit. He got me moving so light and well on the court, um, which was exactly what I needed because I think that jump from 14 to 16 and even 18, 16, 18 is like you, it's a faster game um, because everybody's growing and get uh, getting stronger. And he helped me just like strategically um, really, he worked on my strengths. Um, he made certain things just like make sense for me and um, see things in a different way, which was great. Um, and he was just really positive. Also like something I'll never forget from him was that I, I won a lot of sportsmanship awards back in my day, which if anybody who actually knows me in my second half of my tennis and pickleball life, um, know me that it's shocking, but I actually used to win a lot of sportsmanship awards. So, um, I came home to, from a tournament and got, I don't know what I placed, but I placed and also came up with a sportsmanship award. And he said, if you don't, you ever come back here the sportsmanship award ever again and that was really funny because that's made that's just stuck with me like i'm out there to win like i'm not going to be nasty and i'm not going to cheat but like i'm going to be out there to win like i'm not being nice being like here's your ball like go get your ball for you nice shot nice try like i'm not doing that well that's where that's where i know you know i know your father so well and your mother so well is that uh yeah you needed to have the the face look, the the game face, uh, the same look your for dad sure. had when he talked to those handballers. For uh, sure. You know, yeah, just for a, sure. Just a look that could stop an oncoming truck. With um, yeah, no, I think a negative for and you, you referred to their program as Tennis Smith. Um, I haven't heard that name in a long time. Tennis Smith School. <laughs> we called our program that for twenty some twenty some years. But obviously it has some ego in it with, with the name Smith. And we just, you know, now it's great base curriculum. And we had the great base curriculum. We were working on that starting back in 81. But with, um, during the time that you trained with us, you know, I think a, a negative could be teaching to the lowest denominator. You know, you're, you know, you're in a classroom setting and, you know, that's where, um, it, some kids can hold other kids back. So we would, and you know, I still to this day have people come to me where their, our job is to reinvent their game. You, you, right. you would remember that people come in and they're filmed and they, Absolutely. Might, might they come for, in from all the world. Yeah. They come in for a week or two weeks. And the negative for that was, cause there's been times in my career way back when, where I didn't have people flying in to work with me. And uh, then you can have a squad and you can say, okay, let's, let's, let's run. And, you know, that's the area of tennis that, that I know the least about, but I, I certainly don't have a problem blowing the whistle and, and making people run and such. Um, with, right. uh, there was a film of uh, your mother running a run, running session on her course, Tennis Intelligence Applied. Um, do, you, yeah. do you remember uh, Eric Oosterhout, who went to Harvard? Erica, Oost- Erica Oosterhout? Yeah. Yeah, I do. She played soccer, had a knee operation. Her mother was going through law school. She wasn't a lawyer at that time. And I said, hey, you know, let me uh, teach you. Because then we also had that. We had tennis teachers were always visiting. So we, we taught her to play. Um, but there's a, your mother's running a, a, a beep test. And she she's in there. But, you know, she got to the point where she's playing soccer. But she had good grips and good swings. And it, it wasn't, that's a good lesson for tennis parents listening to is, 
um, that she, because of a knee operation, she said, okay, I'm going to play tennis. And she played at the level where she could play at Harvard. Um, right. Other, that makes me think of some other clips. Um, I know there's more than three, but there's, um, um, I can dig these out and send them to you, put them on Facebook, uh, Rachel Rohrbacher. We have kids drop hitting balls to a basketball hoop. And we always tell people yeah. your, your, your target is small and elevated. And you're one of the kids in that, um, in that clip. And, you know, all, all the kids in that clip uh, went on and, you know, did really well playing college tennis. Because when people play tennis, they see their target through the net and they think the tennis court is gigantic, but it's, you know, it's less than 20 degrees wide from the baseline. Another one, right. uh, we have a quadrant tournament. We have the tiebreaker test. When people come in, we feed six shots. You would remember that. And, and, uh, yeah. if you score, if you hit six shots, you win the point. Um, but we get everybody in line and everybody gets so pumped up to do the quadrant tournament. They don't get so pumped up to do the tiebreaker test just with <laughs> by themselves or they're sharing a court with a partner and they alternate who feeds, who hits, but you're pretty young and there's some older players in that and you win the quadrant tournament. So you have to hit a forehand volley cross court in the service box. So that's round one. You make that, you're live. You miss, you're out. And then people start dropping like flies. So the next the next shot, sequence of shots, there's two shots in round two. You have to hit an approach shot in the far quadrant straight ahead, come in and angle the ball in the short quadrant cross court. So then it's two. And then the third round, it keeps going. You got to hit cross court in the far quadrant. And then you go down the line. And every time you miss, you're out. And uh, there's another time where you had fallen off of your bicycle and you mm -hmm. couldn't play two handed. There's a clip of that um, where, um, you know, you're just hitting a one handed underspin approach shot. And that's certainly, yeah. that's certainly a shot that people don't hit anymore um, with. Um, but no, I could see that also too. I think it, it's it, once someone has a base and then as long as people don't mess with the base, as long as people are not changing your forehand and changing your backhand, um, I think it's very good to work with a number of coaches. Um, yeah. but, but in the early years, I mean, too many coaches can spoil the broth and, um, you know, it's, you know, you just don't want to be 15, 16 years old, ideally, and having to make grip changes and swing changes. Um, right. I mean, that would have been awful. I think like I was very fortunate, like, um, to have had all of that done at such a young age before I started playing tournaments. And then by the time I was with Damon, like, again, I don't know if he would have made, I mean, if I didn't go to you, if he is capable of like, if he w would want to do technical stuff, like I know he's capable of it, but I don't know if he'd want to, but like, um, I didn't, he didn't have to touch any of my technique, like nothing he did with me. I think he like helped something like a hitch in my overhead that I developed on my own, but like, he touched nothing technical, so oh, it's really, um, yeah, all it's, that was taken care of. It's brain memory. I mean, you just you have to be programmed. Um, you know, I know that uh, your mother got along with everybody, and I think you getting the sportsmanship award. That's where you uh, people people are a reflection of both their parents, the mother and their father. And yeah. uh, your mother would, you know, always have a smile, and you know, kids would be messing up, and she'd laugh. Say, "Oh, they're young," and um, with. Um, I didn't quite see it that way that often. Uh, but anyway, the, 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 the Sullivans, um, I remember the youngest Sullivan, um, Jamie, uh, Jamie was a really good runner and he, he used to help my son Connor try to break, you know, such and such mile time. Another Jesuit kid who 
I believe he, Connor Bluen was a, was in the Olympics as a sailor. I was told oh, that wow. I never really confirmed that, but I remember him helping Ryler to heart because Ryler, like my son, the, their, their strength was not, you know, running the 12 minute run or trying to break the five minute mile. Right. But, um, the, the, the middle, the middle girl, Kelly, she went on and played at Furman. I mean, so she was a, a very, you know, a very accomplished player. And I think the oldest daughter played at a school up in Connecticut, but, um, Heather, the story for tennis parents, um, they went to work with Chuck Creasy. He was a great coach, but he's more of the, you know, the college coach format. And there is a, you know, it's like Roger Federer said, it's, it's great to have the, the, or he said, I had the right coaches at the right time. And really the great base ideally is for kids that are under the age of 12 and they really need to establish the foundation, the fundamentals. Right. So, um, you know, Heather is from South Carolina. So they went to, uh, Chuck Creasy's camp. And then she, Tom Gilly, who was a student of mine, then for two years, then he went to work at Vandermeer's for 15 years. Um, and she said, Oh, you learned all your tennis from Dennis. He certainly learned a lot of tennis from Dennis. And she, he said, no, I, uh, I learned by, from a guy, I used my name in third person. I learned from a guy named Steve Smith. So Heather called me up and she said, I want to apologize. And I said, about what? And she said, and this is for everyone. And she, she said, um, we started the course. We should have stayed the course. Um, that mm. the, um, you know, there's so many people that will, they, they work on basics and then they think, well, I now I can move on, but you never really want to yeah. really, you don't really want to totally move away from basics. Um, you know, I saw you play at, at you know, a couple NCAA tournaments where, you know, you still had the foundation and you, and you still have it while you, while you play, while you're playing pickleball. Um, yeah. So tell us about going to South Carolina. Um, that was just an amazing experience. It's kind of jarring to think that I've been out of college longer than college was. Um, but I, my coach was Kevin Epley there. Um, he, I think he taught at a couple of schools before South Carolina, being at South Carolina, and he also taught some people on the tour, I believe. Yeah, um, yeah. He's I, a big, I, big – oh, go ahead. No, no, sorry to interrupt, but yeah, I – I've been introduced to him, but you know, you, you introduce a lot of people in tennis, but I don't know him, but yeah, he's a William and Mary. I'll just go through this. Yeah. He has a very impressive background coach Davenport and through connection with Billie Jean King. He was an Olympic coach, mm -hmm. a fed cup coach. He worked at ball Terry's when, uh, Megan Moulton Levy. I haven't seen her mm -hmm. a long time. I understand that she's on the board of directors at the USTA, but uh, another coach sent her to me and she came a couple of times to, you know, work on the backhand volley, work, work on the, on the serve. But he, he, he traveled with her for four years. Um, but yeah. when, when you were there, they, they were top five in the country, right? So when I got there, they weren't, but when I left there, they were. <laughs> Tell us about that culture. I mean, uh, obviously he's been very successful. Um, Kevin's great. I mean, he, he big double specialist. I think, um, that's mostly, I mean, I, I did, I was very successful by the end of my junior tennis career. So I'm not going to say this is mostly why, but Kevin loved people who were good in doubles. He, he put so much emphasis on doubles. Like I, I promise you so many of our practices that were like two and a half hours long, we did warm up and like doubles drills for at least an hour of our practices. Like 
he was very serious about doubles. So I think that really played to my strength as a tennis player. And he also um, just, again, enhanced, like he really embraced my game, encouraged even more, like maybe adding, because I never did a kick serve. Um, I think maybe that came from you and my dad. I'm not sure, but I never really had a kick serve because he tried to help me do that from the ad side and serve in volley sometimes. Um, and he just created such an amazing cult, uh, bottom to top culture, bottom up, I guess you could say. Um, when I got there, uh, it was, they were still figuring stuff out. I think we were a top 30 team. Um, I was pretty injured my first two years. And by my junior year, um, that's when I started to play. I went about undefeated for the whole SEC season and we got, we got ranked. I don't know if we got ranked into top 10 by the end of that year. We did very well. Um, and then by my senior year, um, I think I got ranked in doubles up to nine in the nation. And um, I was playing very well. Um, and we won the SEC. And we got to the Elite Eight that year. And we got ranked up to three in the nation as a team um, my senior year. So, I mean, he just created this... Um, again, helped us get to a bottom, a place where everything was coming from us. And like when I was a junior and senior, um, we, we kind of ran, ran a tight ship. Um, accountability was huge. Conflict resolution was huge. Um, and I, I mean, I think that's just so important. And I think, um, even translating to like team things and, um, what I've been doing since college, not only pickleball, but I got a master's, like, everything um that i just firmly believe in everything he did with us as a team i just want to continue doing things like that because it was just so successful and it's just how things are supposed to be and people don't understand it it's crazy with uh university of south carolina i was on the campus one time uh i was in florida with one of my brothers uh, my brother pat he played golf at the University of South Carolina. Um, oh, wow. There's a girl from Tampa. Do you know Miranda Katiris? You know uh, I don't name? think so. She's much older than you, but she's her name's in the record books, like your name's in the record books. Um, she, she won quite a few matches. I remember I um, used to give her lots of private lessons, and she used to go to the, I think it was the Palmer Academy, but I was giving gave her privates. Seth Rose, I taught. He was an All-American. He's on the the East South Carolina University Hall of Fame. I, yeah. I saw I saw I know, uh, Carlos Goffey well from years gone by, but his son Josh. I saw him one time, and uh, I'd asked him about you, and he was very positive. Loved you as a competitor. He said that he had, you had helped him with a camp at one time. Yes, um, we did the uh, summer Wilson camp. Uh, I spent a lot of time with Josh. I think I did that at least two years, maybe three. Um, those were a grind. So <laughs> he's been very yeah. successful as well at South Carolina. Yeah, um, when we were there, the men weren't as successful. But I, I, I don't really keep up, which is a little sad. I don't keep up too well with tennis nowadays. Um, but I did know that the men's team did phenomenal uh, since I've been out because uh, they had. I don't think Paul Jobs there anymore, but Paul Jobs doing really well. Um, he he's going pro now and. They have yeah, a couple yeah. other guys who were like Connor Thompson, who got in a wild card into Wimbledon doubles, and uh, they have a few really, really good guys. So I saw um, Paul Jubb win the uh, NCAA tournament. 
Um, yeah, he's, with, he's so good. With, um, but you had some injuries. Your first two years, back problems and shin splints. You didn't play that much as a so- freshman sophomore, right? Because of injuries. Yeah, I played doubles my sophomore year, but I had I had a just a slew of injuries. Um, my freshman year, we ran too much and ran. I mean, he ran us into the ground, um, which he would admit was not the right thing to do, um, especially like coming in. I was running a lot before it and I got really bad shin splints and had um, some stress fractures in my shins. So I actually had to wear like switch a boot on my legs because I have them in both and you can't walk around with two boots. Um, and then by my sophomore year, I ended up getting mono and I was very sick. And then I didn't get the flu shot because I had mono in the fall. And then I ended up getting the flu in the spring. And then by then, I mean, understandably, Kevin was like, well, like you, you haven't played at all. You're not going to play now. Like, I mean, I'm not going to put someone who hasn't played matches in. So that made sense. I played some doubles, but that was about it. And then my junior year, I was, I mean, I was struggling with back issues. Um, but I still played every match. Um, but I was struggling with them and, um, I still struggle with back issues to this day because of a certain event that happened there, which I won't get into, but, um, there, uh, I still struggle with that. And then my senior year, I still played, but um, I had to take about four weeks off in the beginning of the spring season because I had a grade two or three tear in my ab and I had to go in my abdomen. I had to go in for a uh, PRP. So I was definitely through the ringer. Wow. Throughout my college career with injuries. But you hung in there with uh, the junior year. I've got down here. You were 40 and seven. It's a record. Um, when, uh, Point eight five one, um, almost ninety percent of your matches. Twenty and four in singles, twenty and three in doubles. Um, with, uh, but no, it's great. I mean, injuries. Uh, I think one thing that is a positive about injuries is they let you know how much you really love the game when you're sitting on the outside yeah. looking in, huh? I think, and this is something I've learned. I didn't know it at the time. Um, I played tennis for so long in my life um, that it defined me completely. And, um, that's another topic, but I think by the, when I stopped playing tennis, I was okay with that. Um, I was okay with being done with tennis. It was sad. And of course, you know, it's a little emotional because that was a huge chunk of my life. Right. I started at six and played till I was 22, 23. Um, but I missed competing and missed my team, obviously, but, um, the competition was what, was keeping me alive in tennis. I don't know if I loved tennis that much by the end of my career, but I knew I loved competing and I wanted to compete with my team. So that's what kept me going. Um, and obviously, pickleball has given me an outlet to compete even more. Um, I think I was most upset about not competing anymore. So, uh, Talk a little bit about uh, the grind as far as being a student athlete, um, going to practice, that time commitment, and then the academic side. Yeah, I mean... I said this in so many little panels I did for community service. I mean, the thing you will learn if you have not learned it by college uh, time is time management. Um, That is the most important thing, the most important thing. And another thing um, that's hard to grasp, but it's very true, um, is that you're a student athlete. So you're a student first, and then you're an athlete. Um, if you don't have good grades, a certain grade, you can't compete. 
Um, and think about it like this, if you're not going to go pro or if you don't want to, or maybe if you, you know, have injuries, anything can happen and you put the athletics before being a student and your future, like really you need to focus a lot more on the school piece, um, and prioritize that. Well, you need to find a good balance. Um, it's not just you're there to play your sport, which is what I thought I was there for. And then you quickly learn. So um, I'm grateful that I learned that quickly. But it's a very common misconception, I think, um, when you go into college after playing. You know, I was homeschooled because of tennis. I prioritized tennis. I got behind in classes because I went to tennis tournaments um, in high school. And um, I was like, well, it's okay. I'm going to play tennis in college. I'm going to play tennis. I'm going to have a scholarship. Like, it's fine. And then when you're in college and you're like, oh, wait, like there's a life after this and there's a life after tennis, I should probably focus a little bit more on my education. So um, I'd say that's the most important thing. And balancing it is something it's going to be different for everybody. Um, and there's a way to be social and play tennis and be a good student. I promise you, um, you just have to find what works for you. Uh, you speak so highly of Kevin Epley, how he's not only helped you then, but you know what they what he did at that time, you obviously stated it's going to help you through life. What about all the other people, yeah. the assistant coaches, the trainers? Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. The assistant coach, his name's Jeff Nabolo. He's actually the head tennis coach for women's tennis at SMU. Um, I actually have stayed with him twice last, him and his family, twice last year for pickleball tournaments. So I still have a great relationship with Jeff um, and Kevin. But um, Jeff, has, I've seen him more recently and consistently. Um, he was, he was more on my court throughout my career. Um, they were a great balance to each other and, um, as coaches and as people and their roles for us, um, as a team. And he was more, spent way more time with me. Like he was always on my court when I played matches. He was just perfect for me, like a perfect fit when I was competing. He was great. Um, and he was also, uh, more into, like after I got injured in Chinsland, he was actually the one to bring a whole new concept to our fitness. Um, he brought heart rate stuff into it. So we would do biking and he was just way more aware of like our joints and there's ways to work out and be fit without running three miles, um, mile repeats at certain times and having to run a mile under 630. Like he was like, this is ridiculous. Like people are getting injured. So he played a big role in that. Um, and the trainers, um, I didn't really, I loved our trainers, but we didn't really have a state, the same one throughout um, our my whole time. I think it was like an athletic training program. So um, we had a different one every year, but I spent a lot of time um, in the athletic training room. I think if I could look back at my younger self is, and I'd tell her one thing, it would be to stretch before and after every single time I was told that so many times, but it was by older people. And I thought I'm never going to get old. I'm never going to be hurt. And I always was. And now I'm hurting all the time and I'm only 26. So I think that, um, take advantage of your PTs. If you go to college, like take full advantage, like of the athletic training room, stretch, take care of your bodies. And, and one thing I miss so much about being a student athlete is having that. I think, now I always got my cup. I got my back cuffed. I don't know if you know what cupping is, but it's um, a modality of recovery. And um, I got it cuffed every other day. And when I graduated, I'm like, who 
going to be covering my back because uh, it's really tight right now and I don't know what to do. So um, I still I still don't have anybody to cut my back and it's been four or five years, but we're working on it. But um, You don't have a, yeah. a, a trainer with pickleball that's, that's doing that for you? At the tournaments we have them and I take full advantage of them there. But um, I did have one where I was living last year. I finally got a, P, a PT. But um, I haven't found one where I'm currently at yet. And I'm pretty healthy. So um, I'm not, I travel so much, it's kind of hard for me to sit down and get a good one because I want someone who's going to know what they're doing. It takes a lot for me to trust someone with uh, my body because, you know, I got stretched one time at a tournament, a pickleball tournament, and they like overstretched me and tweaked my knee. So now I don't let anybody stretch me and I stretch myself because that, that freaks me out. Um, so I really got to get good recommendations and a referral to somebody. I, I don't just look on the internet for that. But I did recently find um, a fitness trainer where I'm at. And he's great. And um, one thing I will say is someone's going into collegiate um, athletics um, for tennis or whatever it is. Um, the strength training, just be careful. A lot of schools do the heaviest weights and these um, bars and workouts that are so heavy and they're just trying to bolt you up. And I think that like, I mean, it is important to speak up if that's happening. I think that happens in a lot of universities and it's not good. We had that a little bit, but, um, but by, I don't know what year we, we started getting a better one, but still like the stuff I'm doing now is, so much better for your body and honestly the stuff I'm doing now would have been way more beneficial in college I'm doing a lot more plyometric and unilateral bilateral I could talk all about that stuff but I think that's something like in college that I hope is changing with people not just like trying to bolt you up as a tennis player that's unnecessary yeah I mean I think that's one area where tennis has improved um, um, with fitness but at the same time you know, certification is not education. And I think, um, right. you know, PTs now for the most part, um, I, again, it's just like, well, we think it's just like tennis, but, um, I think it's more tied in with the medical side where uh, I think tennis is still too much uh, on the guesswork side of it. Um, with, uh, Jeff, what's Jeff's last name again? The assistant coach. Novolo. Okay. Dennis's brother. Yeah, yeah, so, uh, so, yeah, so I, I've met Jeff. I don't know him, but I, you know, was introduced to him, talked to him on the phone about a player. He, he was at Air Force, I believe. Yeah, he was at Air Force but before I, um, he went to South Carolina. But I was told that he's a really funny guy. Oh, he, I mean, hopefully don't tell him I said this, but he's definitely one of the funnier people I've ever met. Like he is just, he's awesome. He, he, if you dislike him, I'm going to question that because he's just a great person and he's so funny. Well, I think there's a lot to be said about humor. Um, certainly, uh, Rachel has a great name listers. The first, the first syllable, Rachel, strong syllable, but Rohrbacher mm -hmm. is a great name that you can roar. And mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, everybody has their own sense of humor, but no, um, I could go through some things on humor with yourself uh, from way back when, but <laughs> perhaps you didn't think we're so funny, but uh, anyway, you know, like Coco, Coco is your dog. He's such a much better. Rocco. 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 I'm sorry. Rocco is that he's such a much better athlete, the late Rocco. Right. But uh, you know, the, oh, yeah, the late Rocco. <laughs> humor in the locker room. Um, 
Yeah. You, you, you know, you, you, I, you know, I think that's right. Parents, I tell them all the time that, you know, your kids got to be good in the classroom. They got to be good in the gym. They got to be good on the track. They got to be good in the locker room. And then obviously they got to be good on the tennis court. But I think a lot yeah. of times they're thinking they only have to be good on the tennis court. And, you know, totally. you, you got to be able to laugh. You got to have a little, little bit of fun. Um, I, I'd say the people, the places where the better tennis players lack most is being good in the locker room. Say that again, please. Like the places where tennis players lack most are being good in the locker room. Yeah. I, I think for yourself being at HCC, we was a very large diversified group. Um, you know, you definitely were, you know, I think obviously your, your, your parents, uh, they certainly, um, you know, need a lot of praise, a lot of pats on the back for making you a tough competitive cookie. But, uh, you certainly, uh, um, Rohrbacher over here, um, it, you know, you weren't treated like, okay, you're a little kid at a, at a, at a country club. It was definitely no, not. <laughs> no, no way. Was it that, was it, was it that, that way? Uh, but no, it's interesting. Um, and I think that's one thing about homeschooling. Um, you, you, you have to find ways, uh, that, that setting, that community we, we had, it. Uh, you know, and I, again, your, your mom was there quite often and there was people like your mom, you know, there was a lot of people that added to the community. And, and, uh, so you're, you know, it wasn't met. You were just one-on-one -on -one with a coach and it was, it, there's a lot to be said about group dynamics. Yeah, absolutely. So you, what, your degree at, uh, uh, South Carolina is in, maybe you said that. It was, uh, it was in psychology. Psychology. Vic Brain used to say about psychology. People study psychology to figure themselves out. Is that why you study psychology? Maybe. We'll never know. <laughs> but um, I got. I actually went on to get my master's in um, social work. But um, you know, a lot of people do that. I definitely don't want to work in social work. I don't think um, I would probably go on to get um, my clinical license and do. Um, private practice or work for a sports team or something. I definitely, once I'm done with pickleball, I think I would love to uh, work as a sports mental health counselor. So um, I will definitely be using that degree. You know, I, I spent the last two years pretty much uh, at the Battle of Boca um, almost every weekend. It's a great service that's provided, a standing tournament. And it's amazing how many people um, – are there recruiting? They're, it's not like they're doing the type of work we did at HCC where you were, you know, you're, you're just pounding out, you know, working on basics and fundamentals or we call those people handing out business cards, third base coaches. They want to coach somebody. Yeah. They want to coach somebody who's already played or that, you know, is a very good player. They're on third base or about, yeah. to, about to round and, and go, go towards home. And I've always said that, you know, tennis needs more first base coaches, but with those business yeah. cards ha being handed out, there's all sorts of people that, you know, are, um, recruiting to be the mental coach, um, with, when you were at, um, South Carolina, did you have a mental coach that did the staff, did the head coach, coach Apley have a mental coach that you could work with? So to be completely honest, um, I think we had a social worker working there, um, that I did not utilize her. I think by my last year, we had a sports psychologist there. Um, but again, I, I didn't use her. Um, not, not to say I, I didn't need her. Like, I, I think that they are sometimes very necessary, but, um, 
I just didn't, uh, at that moment in my life, when by my senior year, I thought um, everything was going really well for my game. I had a great relationship with all the girls on my team and with my coaches, and I just, um, it wasn't needed in that moment. So I did not utilize her. But I think there are many, many teams and individuals that could benefit at certain points in their careers or lives from a, from a sports psychologist or mental health counselor. So. Oh, Andy Fitzell, he's our podcast founder, my podcast coach. Uh, I I think quickly, uh, I would say Nicole Erickson, um, Jim Lair, and Joey Johnson are three, three people who've had as guests on the mental side. And w- one thing that Joey, where Joey comes to my mind is um, we've coached his son, Spencer, forever. We're still working with him. We're still doing video work and such. He, he's a freshman at UCLA after going on a two-year mission. But he hits the ball well, and people are actually surprised that he was on a two-year mission and he comes back and he hits the ball well. Well, that's that's a sign of efficient strokes. If someone's injured, uh, when you come back from an injury, the stroke that comes back to you the fastest is the one where you're the most efficient. But my point with uh, Joey is I think the, the mental toughness coaches, I mean, they pay, play a key role. But um, if you, Vic Braden, you know, if you, you have no forehand, you're not going to be mentally tough. You, Jim Lair, yeah. you, have, you have to have strokes that hold under, under pressure, but you, you certainly would have the background to do both. Um, going back to tennis and pickleball, the term bridge sport. Um, I know in Florida, for the most part, they're not playing pickleball and clay. Is that accurate? All, all yes. over the country? And that's because yes. of the bounce of the ball? I think the bounce of the ball will also, it would add a weird, like, what is the clay? There's holes in the wiffle ball. So it's like kind of a dynamic of like, what was having the clay in the ball mean? Like, what would that change? Would it change? Like if it gets stuck inside, would it make it heavier? Would it, you know, we don't really know what it would do. So there's like a lot of little things like that. Um, Steve Campbell, who I work with, here at the Wintergreen Resort, there's four courts at the bottom of the mountain. And we're never at the bottom of the mountain. The top of the mountain, there's uh, 12 clay courts, eight pickleball courts, and three indoor hard courts. And we're very spoiled. We pretty much have the run of the place because there's not much activity here. It's just, it's a resort with one country store. People come here to ski. But what he's done is taken the clay off um, a clay court and, and, and just experimenting to see if people could uh, play um, pickleball on a clay court without clay, um, mm. with, but there, there's a sport called spec tennis. Have you heard of that? I don't think so. And I don't know why they called it spec tennis because it's basically a spinoff of, um, paddle tennis that FDR, um, he thought tennis courts at public parks took too much space. So instead of being 78 feet, they would be 42 feet service line to service line. And you'd play with a wooden mallet, a punctured tennis ball. And they were courts built, I believe it was, uh, definitely was in the New York area, New York City, St. Louis. I have to double check on that. But definitely Venice Beach out in California. There's, those sorts still exist. And Bobby Riggs, Pancho Gonzalez. And um, I'm drawing a blank here. I should never draw a blank. It's actually in my notes. Um, Althea Gibson. How could I ever forget Althea Gibson? And they started playing that. It just, um, but if uh, we did a video for spec tennis 
and they're I believe they're playing with the uh, orange ball. Uh, might be the green dot ball, but the orange ball. Oh, okay. And the term bridge is that um, I think there should be something done where tennis and pickleball, they really need to work together. Now, the governing bodies of tennis, the USPTA and the PTR, like uh, overnight, it seems like overnight, they became not only tennis associations, but pickleball associations. And it, it just seems that there needs to be you know, someone needs to be waving the flag. And I think the sport should be uh, presented as one. You know, as I said earlier, if you learn tennis, you'll be able to play pickleball. It, it shouldn't be like they're totally different, like they're enemies of one another. Um, with, um, but do, with rackets, I mean, is there a big difference between one racket and the next playing pickleball? For the paddles? Well, yeah, for you. Yeah, I should say paddles. Yeah, not rackets. Yes. Yeah. Um, there's like the thicker it goes like I play with a 60 millimeter um I don't think there might be an 18 or 20 but that would be a little too too fat um so the thicker of a millimeter you go the more control you have the softer the paddle you have the thinner the millimeter so if it's like 11 that's a super thin paddle and the ball um it's like more powerful um because it's not sitting on the paddle as long um so that to me is other, I don't, haven't really understood the differences. Maybe it's because I don't know them, but the differences in the type of materials that's made, there's like raw carbon fire, fiber paddles and fiber flex and a couple of, a couple other ones. Um, and those also, those materials make a difference as well. And there's also like surface. So some surfaces are grittier with like small little hairline divots in them. Um, that make it, those are like kind of the strings, if you will, of a a pickleball paddle. Um, And that makes it grittier to make, allow you to produce more, a little bit more spin than um, a smooth paddle face would. Um, But other than that, those are really the um, most important concepts to understand. What about the size of the grip? I mean, especially not only are you an Eastern, a continental, semi-Western, but also the size, is it, it's, it's no problem to have a two-handed backhand? Yeah, so they have started making um, grips that are longer. I think mine's five and a half inches maybe. Um, and that does make it more roomy for having two hands on the paddle. I actually put my index finger up onto the face of the paddle um, because it's just comfortable there. That's how I've always done it. I was never told to do that. I don't think there's a right or wrong way to hold your I mean, in that sense, like finger up or down with the left hand. Um, I don't think that really matters. But um, if you don't do that, I think you would have to have a longer grip like mine. But um, they do make like four inch grips and they are definitely smaller, maybe less than four inch grips to give you more paddle face, but it's way less grip. But a lot of the men have one only have one hand on the paddle. Um, some women even do as well. I'd say most professional women now do two hands. Um, but yeah, so there are different also grip sizes, like smaller or bigger, like in tennis, like uh, width wise. So, Rachel, your entry into pickleball, let, let me guess. So you finish uh, your undergraduate degree, you're going to make some money before you go to graduate school and you start to work and then you're, you're coaching both. Is that pretty much how you got started? Yeah, um, I was coaching tennis, and Damon taught me pickleball and said, I think you'd be really good at this. I also think you should coach it. 
then COVID hit. So um, there, I was playing a few tournaments in the beginning of 2020. And, um, and then I stopped playing because I think I was just a little burnout from tennis. You know, I just graduated after playing again for three quarters of my life. Um, so I was just burnt out from playing a sport and working out a sport. I just needed a little bit of a break. And um, I stopped playing. I didn't really, I think I might've played one tournament because it was local in Tampa in 2021, just because someone asked me and I was like, whatever, it's like 10 minutes from where I live. But um, after that, I didn't play again. I started teaching in 2022 when um, I moved up to the Midwest. Um, and I needed to make money to help pay for my master's. So I was like, oh, I'll just teach this. It's easy to teach. And let's see if I can get some clients, which I mean, it took off for me. I got so many private clients and um, a lot of people had their own courts, which was very convenient for me. So um, I started teaching. And by the end of uh, 2022, um, I had a lot of people that I was playing with. I had two pro girls here, um, top 10 pros that lived in Indianapolis where I was living. Um, that were like, you should try to go pro, like, you know, you're practicing this, you're, you're doing really well. They're very supportive of me. So, um, when April hit of 2023, which is last year, I'm getting confused on what year we're in, but, um, that was my first professional tournament. And so many people just told me I should go for it. And there were people I trusted and, um, some senior pros in the game who have seen, seen football for a while. They, they said I would be great. So I started playing professional tournaments while I was working a practicum um, within my master's, making no money, um, doing my master's and teaching pickleball to pay for all of it. It was a very stressful time, but it ended up working out pretty well. Um, and yeah, so I play committed to playing tournaments. Um, I really picked up in August. So from August to December last year was the most tournaments I had played and, and I did really well. So now we're a full-time pickleball player. So in listening to this podcast, Rachel Rohrbacher, the draft, tell us about um, people were very surprised that you were like a high draft pick or that you were draft pick and then you ended up being this world championship team. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So um, in July was when that happened. By that time, I had maybe played three or four, maybe three tournaments um, at a high level oh it was four I played four high level tournaments uh, before that draft and I did pretty increasingly well in each of them I had a top 10 win in um, two of them I believe and then by the last one I had beaten somebody who was on that cusp of the um, of the it's called premier and challenger premier is the top one through 24 women and men and then the challenger is um, the top 25 through 48 women and men. So that's kind of where people go. And um, I had beaten someone on the cusp of that, like who would be a last pick of premier and first of challenger. And I also knew the girl who picked me from junior tennis. Her name's Anna Bright. Um, and she knew me as a competitor. She knew the SEC. She played my team when she went to Berkeley. So um, she remembered me and saw me have those good wins. So she a good chance and picked me and um i would say most of the people were very upset that that happened um social media not kind things were said about me being picked and um it was upsetting to a lot of people um so uh, anna took a huge chance on picking me because of the it was kind of like a very 
big thing in pickleball um, for me to get picked. And um, we ended up winning the first event we played as a team. And um, I think I was like the number one girl or something record or whatever, or maybe tied with Anna or something um, during the event. So it ended up going really well. And we ended up making the finals of the last two events. There's only a total of three. And um, we made the finals of every one and won one. So um, it was definitely a great, great thing for me to do so well because it was so frowned upon, I think, to pick me. Um, so and you, now she's my partner for this year in regular tournaments. So is it contract? I mean, you, you're, it's the Orlando Squeeze. <clears throat> Are you with that team again? No. So I'm not going to get too much into it because it can get very confusing. But um, the team I'm on is a league called the MLP, and the individual tournaments is a league called the PPA. And, um, they are <clears throat> trying, they are trying to like find their footing on what's the best way to do it. But basically, um, we're waiting to, for the draft to happen again this year. Um, technically I could be on the squeeze again and they definitely want me. I've been talking to the owners and the staff and, um, they're going to try to get me. But if somebody pays to get me first, there's nothing, I, I have no control in where I get picked. Um, unfortunately. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, Singles, doubles, mixed. How's that go? Um, so I play women's doubles and mixed doubles. I don't play singles because I don't, they don't pay very well for singles. There's no benefit to me playing singles and it increases, uh, injury risk. So I just don't play singles. I don't enjoy it as much. I'm, I'm actually pretty good. I went three sets with the number two, um, woman in the, world or whatever i don't know really the ranking system but she's number two um back in september and i got bronze in that tournament um and i'm pretty good at it but i just don't enjoy it that much and i am scared i'm gonna get injured from it rachel with your schedule so your schedule is it is it a mix between what you do um as a team member with your team in league play and then there's also in independent tournaments yeah so how it was last year um there were three events i'm going to go based off of when i started i guess in july there were only three team events and everything else was individual um now this upcoming year again they're trying to find their footing on what's best they changed it up so now we're going to be in regions competing against each other and there's going to be a lot more events regionally i think i'll play eight maybe events um but then three big ones that are like the normal MLPs they're called. Um, so I'll be playing a lot more team events this year in addition to um, a lot of individual uh, tournaments as well. So someone like, um, you know, there's a celebrity match, I think uh, Sharapova and, well, first of all, Graf and, and Agassi, hus- husband, wife, are going to be playing against Sharapova and McEnroe, I think. Um, but say someone like Jeannie Bouchard, she just, she hasn't, she hasn't played in the league necessarily, right? She just plays in independent tournaments or showcases. Yeah. I don't know if she'll want to play. I don't know if she'll sign up. I don't know contractually if she has to, I I have no idea. Um, I did not speak to her, so I don't, I don't want to speak on her behalf, but um, I know she is playing. She's also signed up for the next individual tournament on February 1st. I'll see her there again. Um, so she'll be playing that. Uh, I don't know. Again, I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, it's obviously individual by individual case study, case study. But um, is there a way to 
climb the ladder like there is in tennis where you can play, you know, the 25Ks, you know, a future entry-level tournament and you move up to Challenger? So honestly, that is where it's really differentiated. Like technically, you could sign up for men's pro. Like would you would you get it? You get in qualifying and then you'd have to get through qualifying. But like there's not like um, there are more tournaments that are worth more points, but like they're all pro. Like if you're in the pro division, it's not like that. Um, you are this sport is very different to tennis in the sense where you are quite literally as good as only as good as your partner. You can truly isolate someone in the sport. So um, it is challenging to get good quickly because you don't get as good as a partner if you're very good. No one's going to hit to you. But um, the word does get around like, oh, this girl's good. She just might not have a good partner. And then maybe as you get better, you'll get better and better partners. And you have to climb. Basically, the only way to climb in this sport is to get results. Um, I I think I'm on the more luckier side of having Anna Bright's number three girl. So I kind of, she knew me from junior tennis. She knew me as a collegiate athlete. She saw some results I had. Um, but luckily I got in the, you know, premiere very quickly. Um, I didn't even play challenger and I don't think anybody's done that. So um, it does usually take longer. I think I've just gotten fortunate and taken advantage of those events and proved myself. But, um, Along those lines, uh, 2024, it's January. How many weeks will you play? Do you have an idea? Is there a set schedule for 12 months? Yeah, I'll probably be playing uh, 25 weeks out of the year. So sometimes you travel with your team, sometimes you travel individually. Yeah. And you have a coach. um, When you were with the Orlando Squeeze, obviously there's coaches perhaps, right? Um, it depends on if your team wants one. Um, it, since it is so new, it's not like we have the Steve Smiths of the world where you have been in this sport for decades and you're very knowledgeable and it's this established sport where there is a right and wrong way and you you know the strategy just by just like instantly watching a match. Um, I, I would prefer like suggest if I got put on the Orlando Squeeze again, I'd love to have Damon be the coach. And he's they're more of like someone on the outside looking in, tell you what's happening and be there for you. Um, pickleball happens so quickly, especially in the team setting. Um, so it's hard as a player to realize the changes you need to make. You have to be very fast acting. You don't have like two hours like in a tennis match. It's like sometimes 20 minutes. So With... Um... When you were a junior, we used to use the old volleyball scoring. If you remember, you could only win a point when you were serving. So you're playing doubles and you know, you lose your serve, then the other team serves. And it just lets people know yeah. the, the importance of serving. That's how pickleball works, right? You can only win if you're serving? Yeah. Yeah. What, what's a dream tiebreaker? Um, so in Major League Pickleball, which is the team event, um, if you guys are tied after both gender doubles and both mixed doubles, so it would be two, two overall scoring, um, you play a dream breaker, which is where each person plays four points of singles. And then like, um, the other person go, your other teammate goes in. So it's like, I'll play four points against somebody. Then Anna would go in and play four points against somebody. Then 
um, Andre and then Zane. So you would just keep rotating until 21. So um, let's get into the money side. I don't want to be personal, but I uh, remember you signing, mm-hmm. signing that contract. Your father was all for it where I get 22.2% of your lifetime earnings. Uh, but no, seriously, you have, <laughs> you have an agent that's helping you with, um, you know, like apparel and rackets and shoes and all that. Cause it seems yeah, like, it seems I, like the um, sport's booming, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely booming. Um, I have an agent now, um, which is kind of crazy. And, um, you know, I have to hire some people to help with social media to just keep growing my brand, even though I hate social media and I hate self-promotion, but it's something I have to do. Um, but yeah, the, the prize money is getting better. And for certain events, it's really great. Um, you can definitely make a living off of it and I'm enjoying what I'm doing. So kind of crazy to think I can make money playing pickleball, but no, it's here we are. No, I think, I mean, you're explosive and you're the way you play. I mean, it, it, your tennis game, uh, as I said earlier, um, going forward, being aggressive, when you were a young kid, yeah, you loved to play with the boys, older boys, and you had no problem where I said, okay, the team that gets the most pegs wins. And you you had a smile on your face, and you, as a young kid, you, you loved that. Uh, tell me a little about, or tell us a little bit about the rating. How does that work, a ranking? Yeah. Um, so how it works is a beginner is 2-5. Um, so it goes up from there. So. Beginner will be two five to three zero. Intermediate would be three five to four zero. Um, it would be kind of like that four two five, like four five five zero is pretty good, but not quite pro. And um, then above, so like I'm technically a five point seven or five point eight or something, and and um, I'm a top twenty, top fifteen pro. Um, I think a lot of the men are a little like the pro men are a little higher. So they're like closer. They're in the sixes. Um, but I think they go with like you, they have like, it's called duper, but I think they do like that same type of like rating system. That's what they use. So, so I mean, a typical day for you now is you don't have the academic work that you had in undergraduate or graduate school, but you're, you're still getting up every day. Now you're trying to get better at pickleball, correct? You're going to the gym and doing this yeah, and doing that. Yeah, I am. Um, yeah, again, I, I just hired someone local who is really great. Um, so I see him about twice a week. His wife um, teaches Pilates in the gym, like private Pilates. So I'm going to be incorporating um, that fitness training with some Pilates training. And um, so I'll be working out about three times a week at a gym. And I practice about every day. Um, I'll be doing like gathers and very hard drilling things in the beginning of the week and um, more play stuff by the weekend if I don't have a tournament. Um, if I do, it's just kind of crunched a little bit in the week because we leave Thursday. Um, yeah, that's so like, and I try to prioritize stretching a lot, um, foam rolling. And um, when I get to be home, I like to just make my own meals. So, I can um, just be conscious of what I'm putting in my body. And um, yeah. Do you hit tennis balls it's anymore nice or no time, no time for tennis? Um, I have actually gotten a little bit of an itch to like try. And um, recently I hit for 30 seconds 
And then I just like off the court because I really wanted to play, but no one would play with me. So, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm sure you did. I'm sure, up old person. I'm no sure you play with me anymore. No, no, you're 26 years old. I'm sure <laughs> that uh, um, you'd have to experiment whether it'd be good to play both. Maybe if you throw your timing off, perhaps it'd be interesting though if you played some tennis and some pickleball. If you felt like it threw your game off a little bit, that's where um, I know club players are still some, some people, I think, I think it's a small percentage is they're still playing both. I think it would be interesting to find out. I mean, I think, it, I don't think at the recreational level in all fairness to pickleball players at the recreational level, you know, three Oh tennis is three Oh tennis. It's, it's not a very high level of play. Um, right. I, Eastern Hills tennis club, um, Brian Clark, great guy. Um, I know his daughter, Sarah is a very good tennis player. Um, are you, in saying that, uh, you could hit some balls with Sarah, but, um, if you just, uh, are you, are you pressed to find people to play with? Is that a problem to practice with? Cause For pickleball? Yeah. Cause there's not that many good players or. Yeah. Um, so where I'm at in Cincinnati, I have a, the good news is you have a slew wherever you are. I feel like of five good five O guys. So, um, they're perfect to drill with because they can, handle my dinks um and you know not miss too much um especially if i get them focused and intense um but it is challenging to find women um it is especially at my level i mean there's just no women to really practice with i have to drive back to indianapolis actually to train with the um their the twins that are top 10 um so i can get some match play against the high level so the match play is where there i struggle finding here um, but the drilling and practicing, it's, it's perfect. I have one pro here, um, a male pro. Um, but other than that, there's, there's not many people. When I go back to Tampa, Florida, there's, um, a, a couple more pros, but again, there's just no women in the Tampa St. Pete area. Um, there's a lot of women in the Naples and Boca area, but just wherever it's so hard to find them. Well, that's the same in tennis though, is that a lot of the women, um, you know, they move up the ladder and their sparring partner, you know, they hire men. I mean, it's pretty much straight across yeah. the board. Um, yeah. With uh, going back to the competitive spirit, the psychology, do you remember, uh, did we go through the Myers-Briggs personality test? We must have, you must have heard that language. We through did. Yes, yeah, we did. Was that part of uh, your undergraduate or master's to the Myers-Briggs? Did they cover that at all? Um, I want to say my master's covered it. My, my undergrad didn't, but, uh, my master's covered it a little bit, but we weren't required to, um, actually in my practicum and my master's, they wanted us to take the test. So they knew more about us as an employee, um, or intern, whatever it was called. But, um, but yeah, it, it's, um, it's interesting how they, used it and they also used another personality test as well uh for our listeners uh joel trucker's article that made it all the way to the cover of tennis magazine is now on our great base tennis website and no i was just wondering with uh hockey i think no but basketball football baseball yes is that they've used personality when it comes down to choosing you know who they're going to who they're going to draft um, yeah, it's pretty interesting and who's going to get along with who. And, um, 
Yeah, it's a great tool. It doesn't it's well, not scientifically validated. It doesn't put anybody in a box, but it's a great tool to understand yourself better and then you know who's going to play doubles with one another and um Oh yeah, I I I um that's what I was kind of alluding to earlier with um Kevin's culture and um recruitment. I think the Orlando Squeeze, another reason why they picked me is um a little bit of personality and energy and passion. Um they went off the character I was and they were creating a team and um, everybody looked at our team like it was this like rare gem that um, someone actually recently told me that that will never happen again. Like the energy and the people on your team were just so amazing. Like it was perfectly drafted. And I'm like, well, why won't that happen again? Like, because I don't think a lot of people have learned that that's what makes a good team. It's not the first and second and 10th best player. It's like, obviously, you have to be good, but um, you have to mesh well, right, as a team. So I think, you know, all the calls I've had with team owners before the new draft this year is that one thing that matters to me are the individuals on my team as people. So um, I don't I don't want, you know, a cancer on the team, especially because we're so small. And we, I mean, it's only four people on a team, right? We better, we better get along and have the same... Uh, ideology of how we compete no it's well put what with pro um pro level sports so if you're you're based in cincinnati and are the matches home and away or are they designated sites i'm going to guess they're designated sites is that right yeah they're designated sites for now um i think that's a direction that a lot of people see the team or that wants the team thing to get to which i think would be super cool i mean look at the most successful sports um basketball and uh football and in baseball i mean that's all on the home and away and the rivalries and the loving someone on your team like i mean i'm not going to say myself but let's say anna for instance who is on the squeeze um she a lot of people identify anna bright as someone on the squeeze so they want you know it's like if she's not on the squeeze this year, that's kind of frustrating because Pickleball is trying to build. They're trying to build a fan base. They're trying to build that. And I think a lot of, like, we especially had that. Um, and now if at least she's not on the team, it's just, like, starting all over. And it's kind of like that emotional attachment that gets people to want to support and watch. No, for know? sure. When I was a kid, I grew up 85 miles. I'm an American, but I grew up 85 miles south of Montreal. And there wasn't free agency, so... Uh, the team, I mean, players would play their entire career for the most part. Every once in a while, there'd be trades, but, um, you know, you wouldn't get to the point where, okay, this is my free agency year, and now I'm open for bid. You you know, if you were playing for the Montreal Canadiens, it was like you had a 15, 20-year career. And then, yeah, the fans really became so tight. They really bonded through that. Um, yeah, I'm sure that's something that Pickleball would want to work out, where there's familiarity, where... It's even like a tennis for tots class, you know, at that age group, it's very important to try to have the same instructor with really young kids. Um, yeah, absolutely. With, um, tell us about your boyfriend. He's a, he's another uh, athlete in the mix uh, that must be helping you with your mindset. Yeah. Um, he plays for, um, SC Cincinnati. He's a professional soccer goalkeeper. Um, and he 
when I moved in with him up in the Midwest, we lived in Indianapolis. He played for the uh, USL team and then um, recently retired to be a goalkeeper coach for the academy. SC Cincinnati heard that and they wanted him to work over here. So that's why we're back in Cincinnati. Um, and he's been working as a goalkeeper coach for the academy and also helps out with the first and second team, which is super cool. Um, and he, I mean, it's just so nice to have him because he's so understanding of not only the schedule, but like the, he knows me very well as a person, but also him playing sports knows how to handle like wins and losses for me and how to be there for me. And, um, he loves pickleball. Like he loves supporting and watching and he's just, um, definitely one of my biggest fans. So I'm super appreciative of him. And, um, he was, when I told him this is what I wanted to do, he didn't look at me like a crazy person. He was like, I think you're going to be great. Like he knows better than anyone. I'm probably one of the more competitive people in the world. So if I put my mind to something, I'll be good at it. That's um, great. within reason, but yeah, he's great. With a goalie, um, growing up playing ice hockey, my mother used to say the toughest job in sports is to be the parent of a goalie. Like say, hockey, the same, oh, the same as yeah. soccer. I know so little about soccer, but if you're playing hockey oh. and if the forwards make a mistake, the defenseman can make up for it. If the defenseman yeah. makes a mistake, the goalie can make up for it. But if the goalie makes a mistake, no chance. There's nobody, nobody to make up for the mistake. And uh, it go- yeah, I just think, you know, when you think about psychology and the, the, the mindset of an athlete. Um, I grew up, you know, three kids for sure. Seth Barnum, Mark Hamlin, and Stevie Pelusio. And Seth, he went off to prep school at a really young age. I'm still in contact with all three of them. And, and um, yeah, goalies um, with, uh, I mean, it, you know, it, the pressure's on the parent perhaps, but also the, the goalie. Um, you know, with hockey, we would use the term sieve, you know, you know, they're like a spaghetti drainer and everything just goes right through them, a strainer. And then uh, in hockey, if the other team scores, the red light goes on. And we'd always say, uh, you know, the red light goes on so much that our goalie's got, is, uh, he's got a sunburn on the back of his <laughs> neck or couldn't, couldn't, oh, that's funny. couldn't, couldn't stop a beach ball. But um, no, I think in, <laughs> uh, with parents listening, obviously um, doesn't always work out that way, but if, you have two athletes bringing up an athlete. Uh, you know, I mean, all you have to do is look at the backstories of people that are successful. Um, so if parents have not been athletes, they have to, you know, really be open to learning and go, okay, what's this all about? Um, but that's interesting that uh, your, your uh, boyfriend, he's a coach as well, right? He's a former, or he's, he's a current player or former player? No, former player. So he retired. And now he's coaching goalkeepers. But it's funny you say that. His parents were warned me because we, we dated while he was playing professionally, like in the MLS and USL. And I was so nervous watching his games, like, because, like you said, like the goalkeeper, it's the worst, the worst feeling ever because every goal looks like his fault. And other, other people, other players on the field can make mistakes but and get away with it, but he can't, obviously, because it's a goal. So um, it's very stressful. And it's funny, though, because he like says he gets stressed when I play. But I'm like, I literally touch the ball a million times. Like, it's not like it's not the same. So it's, uh, it's definitely crazy. When I, when, I was, when, I, when I was a kid, uh, my parents, they moved 150 miles south. And I was 
just about to turn 10. So I was pretty young and I was telling my dad, we're moving the wrong way. I said, let's move to Canada. And hockey was not that strong in the area I moved to. Later I went, you know, I was only the, did that for a few years. Then I went off to a boarding school. It was, I mean, there's still top 10 among boarding schools in hockey. Um, but I remember wanting to be a goalie and asking my father, and I was already scoring goals. And I said, I want to be a goalie, I want to be a goalie. But um, in this small town I grew up in, it produced very good goalies because the, the, the story was that we couldn't get the puck out of our own end. You know, it was, uh, yeah. we, you know, there's a couple of really pushy parents and instead of playing for the, you play, you would play house league. It was so simple. You play house league. And if you were good enough, there was like Syracuse, the Syracuse peewee all-stars. And, um, but you know, we just had a very aggressive parent that pushed it and pushed it pretty soon. Our small town of 2000 people, we were, we were going off to play Buffalo. We were going off to play team like the Rochester all-stars, but you know, we were just outmatched and we, 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 the program wasn't strong enough to have its own travel team at that time. But yeah, goalies, they saw a lot, the, the expression would be they saw a lot of rubber. Um, but it seems to me goalies, uh, I mean, they're so athletic, the soccer goalies, you know, with, with what they're asked to do. Um, yeah, absolutely. I have this down in my notes. I, in my research, uh, Rachel Rohrbacher quote, RR, Rachel Rohrbacher, rest and relaxation. I used to yell that out. Rohrbacher over here. I'd rather play my way and lose than play all up tight and tense and win. That's a Rohrbacher yeah. quote. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? That is so wise. Um, yeah, I I think I learned that in college tennis. Um, there are lots of moments where you have a lot of pressure on you and you can freeze up. And I mean, especially with my game, I feel like I when I was young, it was either an unforced or a winner. I wasn't somebody to want someone to hit a winner on me. I, I like things on my terms. Maybe it's a control factor. Who knows? But um, I, I just know, like, if I'm going to miss anyway, I would rather do it on my own terms. So I think that helps me in those big moments and high pressure moments of like, just trying to stay true to myself and my game because, I'd rather do that and make it look like that. And I also hate the the commentator or the feeling of like people watching it and being like, oh, she's tight. She's nervous. I don't like that look. I don't like it on other people. I certainly don't want it on myself. So I just try to avoid that altogether. Yeah, you're definitely from the get-go, I would say, would be the one ball blast versus the forever push. I don't, yeah, think, I, don't think, I don't think you were ever called a pusher. Now, for our listeners, when Rachel was very young, the pressure, you know, certainly from me and the student assistants and the fellow coaches that were helping, the pressure was on get organized, get the ready position, put that racket at the center of that racket, put it in the neutral position. Um, but the pressure was on skill acquisition. And I think that's where people in the early years, they put too much, there's too much pressure on winning. But I tell juniors, and their parents, like junior tennis for the most part, I don't think it really prepares people for college tennis like it should. I mean, a lot of parents and players, they haven't even seen a college tennis match. And, you know, you play at the level where you go to a, a, a your campus or another campus and it, it looks like an Olympic village. You know, you, you talk a little about the SEC conference. But with that, um, yeah, the pressure, like say three all matches, 
I mean, I mean, junior tennis doesn't really prepare someone for a three-all match. Could you comment on that? Of the pressure of a three-all match yeah, so in you, the you know, Yeah, your NCAA, a dual match, a, an NCAA tournament is even more so. Like, you know, if you win, your team moves on. If you lose, that's in the tournament. But, uh, you know, I just, you know, juniors, they get so nervous over, there's so much anxiety. And it's okay, just imagine. Oh, yeah. Just imagine you're playing for your it, team. I mean, how many three-all matches do you remember playing? You must have played a handful. Many. I, I wasn't many times the person who was the last match on, but in, even watching, that's something also, too. I would much rather be on the court at 3-all than watching at 3-all. Like, watching is just so hard. Um, again, am I a control freak? Maybe. But um, <laughs> I I think that it's, it's so hard, right, because I can look back at everything as a 26-year-old, and I feel like I'm much more wise than I was when I was 16, and I've also lived through it. Um, it's hard, right, because as a junior, you just only play for yourself, and it's all you know, and you're emotional, and you think everything's so much high pressure, and you have to get to a college and whatever, parental, coach, whatever pressures there are at that age, right? It's totally different. But, I mean, just looking now, if only – you know, right in that moment, this is nothing compared to what you will experience in, I mean, whatever school you're going to play at, right? Because not only now at a real moment, you want it for yourself. I hope you want it for your team or else you're on the wrong team, or maybe you're not a good team player. Um, you want it for your team. You want it for your coach. You're also playing to stay in the lineup. Like I'm not going to say every match determines that, but it really does. Like your performance, or at least for my coach, your attitude and the way you handle pressure, that was really determined you being in the lineup. Um, maybe wins and losses here and there, but um, I mean, so you have that pressure as well, which is like, honestly, I'd say more than anything, the team and the pressure of being in the lineup or not is tenfold what you experience as a junior tennis player. Like you're just out there for yourself, really. Like, again, you might have some parental and coach, but uh, pressures, but, um, and everyone's lives are different. I know some Eastern European parents harder on their junior tennis kids than American parents, but still it's, it's a lot, but I mean, the SEC or college tennis, that threat of being in or out of the lineup. It does sneak in your mind when you're out there. <laughs> going going back to the SEC in South Carolina, um, how was your team uh, mostly Americans, a mix, half and half? What was your team as far as Americans to foreigners? I think it, it was a mix. We had definitely more Americans. Um, the bulk of my career there my time there um we had a brazilian who is who's actually top 50 or 30 in wk now doubles she's doing amazing shout out ingrid gamara martin she's from brazil what's her name um, again so what's her name ingrid trans ingrid gamara martin okay um she plays with lisa stefani and and bia and some other people um at doubles. she recently beat coco goff in doubles but anyway she is from brazil i had a girl younger than me from Italy. We had a girl that my doubles partner was from England. And we had some, we had one other Italian at one point, but she transferred and we had a Croatian, but she transferred because she just wasn't a good fit. 
Um, but other than that, I'd say it was mostly American every the whole time. And how about the other teams throughout the SEC? Depended on who it was. I think um, obviously the better teams, right? Like your Floridas, your Georgias, um, your Vanderbilt. Um, they were at the time when I was being recruited. They were the better teams, so they get those blue chips in America and the higher level. Uh, U.S. kids, but um, the ones that weren't as good went foreign, so they could get better kids from over there that wanted to come to America. No, I like what you said about the locker room. Uh, you know, I'm always telling kids you you got to just you know, I so some kids got blue eyes or say so they say they have brown eyes either or. I go, you, you kid with brown eyes, you have beautiful blue eyes, and they say something. I go, you blew it. Don't say, yeah, you know, I remember that. You remember that? You have such people. Don't say anything. Just ignore it. But um, I have to get this out. Stephen Goldman, who was taught by Chris Carey, but he ended up spending quite a bit of time with us. And he was a very good player. He played college tennis. And I could remember the listeners. I could remember this. And, and, you know, you were very authentic. You got along with everybody. You treated everybody the same. And I'd go, Rohrbacher, will you quit asking to be with Stephen Goldman? And, uh, and you're just... You, you got to the point where you would just totally ignore it. And, you know, but, you know, I, I do that all day long and, you know, people get, they'll get so nervous or so insecure. And, but I think, I, that, I think that jockocracy from the locker room, uh, I mean, I grew up in ice hockey and, you know, you platoon cause you're only out there for 45 seconds. You come back, you look straight ahead and the coaches, you know, laced with profanity. They just tell you the mistakes you make. And it's like, you go right back out and you get, you know, you you get used to the chirping. You get used to, um, you know, again. Uh, you don't even I, hear it anymore. Yeah. I don't even hear it anymore. Yeah. Really. Just, or like it, if I do, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. And um, with, uh, I know Connor was much older than you, but he certainly treated you like a sibling. I mean, he gave you a hard time. For sure. He and, threw me in garbage cans. <laughs> with, uh, you know, that's that's where you know, both your parents would realize like, that's a, that's a good thing, you know, instead of like, I mean, I'd have parents, well, that type of thing happens. Uh, we're going to interview Clayton Stanley. He's our original guinea pig from our tennis tech program where you get a college degree. And I, I sent him a text. I said, you're going to be 50 Stanley. And I said, if I live long enough, I'm going to get you on our podcast on your birthday. And um, with, uh, yeah, I think parents have to understand that there's a craziness to it. I mean, it's just, you know, that, locker room humor it's just not all straight laced and march in a straight line i mean you got to have give and take and um with and i think also too in the coaches um you know i mean i remember being told when i was a kid smith you're so slow you got to speed up to stop and you know that doesn't i don't think that happens especially in tennis with um the uh yeah i apologize i i didn't get rocco's name right but i just remember best athlete in the family if you could run like your, if, if you could run like your dog, I mean, he was part greyhound, right? I mean, that guy, whip it. yeah, whip it. I mean, he could just move motor that guy. Anyway, mm -hmm. with um, here's a, a mind vitamin for you. Um, if you don't use your mind, use your mind, use your mind, or it will use you. I heard uh, Tony, is it Tony, yeah, Tony Robbins say that. You know, he, he's got that line, I should have done this and I should have done that and I should have done this. In the end, I should all over myself. But <laughs> yeah, your mind will your mind will definitely work against you. And um, with, um, 
the you're you're going to win or you're going to lose. So I like what you said about you know just hitting out, going down, swinging. Yeah. But in watching you play tennis, I can just see it. You know, I mean, it's just it's just like looking back at it, the, the the developmental time where, um, you know, and you're rewarded by being aggressive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, with um, if you were the uh, commissioner of pickleball, uh, it's it's obviously, I I guess a in its infancy, just starting out. Uh, you know, I guess we could just end with this, but what would you do to, uh, to try to, you know, bridge that gap between tennis and pickleball and, um, you know, tennis people are all upset. They go, okay, pickleball is invading tennis. And, um, you know, and we do have problems in tennis. I mean, I think it's because it's been a money grab and, uh, someone for, for someone to play pickleball, um, it's not that expensive, correct? It gets started in the game. Right. It's not that expensive at all because you don't have to pay for stringing. Um, I mean, shoes, I guess, is the same. And um, you don't like need a fancy bag. Your paddles fit in a backpack. Um, you, I mean, a lot of people don't play with grips. Um, yeah. I mean, the stringing is a huge part of it, right? The maintenance of that. So you really only need one paddle a year and paddles cost anywhere from 120 to i mean the more expensive ones are 300 but that's still less i mean that's as much as a tennis racket minus any stringing so um i think that's and then i i don't know if there's any monetary difference on renting a court maybe it's less for a pickleball court because two pickleball courts make up one tennis court so i'm not sure but um yeah, I think it is definitely cheaper. I think the balls are a little more expensive, but other than that. Tennis balls or pickleballs? For sure. Um, so I think pickleballs are more expensive than tennis balls. But pickleballs, do, do they last forever? I mean, at your level, you break the balls, right? Yeah, it depends on the ball. Um, I think a beginner could make a ball last a little longer, but um, tennis balls are just cheaper per, per unit. Um, and I think... I think you can get away. I mean, obviously you want new tennis balls if you're playing a practice match, but it's the same for a pickleball. So I, I'd say pickleballs are just a little bit more expensive. I think for one pickleball, it's about, a more expensive one is like four fifty five dollars and that's how much you can get a can of tennis balls for. Yeah, I've observed uh, some pickleball functions and in clinics. Um, it seems to me that, you know, some of the drills are the same around the world or two on ones. And, yeah. And, uh, but from a, I just think from a, you know, to help tennis, tennis needs education, education, education. Perhaps that's the same thing for everything. So does pickleball. I mean, you have some people get, again, certification is not an education. You have people saying there, whatever it is, I'm not certified, but whatever it is, the, I'm PP, whatever, certified to teach pickleball. And they're like a free five intermediate player teaching people how to do stuff. And it's because the knowledge just isn't, isn't there for a lot of beginners, intermediate players. So, I mean, it's the same for tennis, right? Anybody can go get certified and say they know how to teach and not. No, again, I think strongly that uh, people that teach like myself, people who teach tennis, I'm telling the tennis players, go play pickleball, sign up, you know, it's, it's movement. It's, you know, it's, you know, how's it go? It's your, your mind, your mobility and your mechanics. And it's, 
Um, you could, as we talked about, perhaps you could throw your timing off, but uh, local tournaments, um, can't beat them, join them, get out and play. But I just don't see it where um, it differs that much. I, I'm sure, like yeah. Sam Query said, you know, 90%. I'm sure there's, you know, I'm sure there's differences, but um, if you can play one, Braden used to say all the time, because people would complain about the lines that went down on a tennis court when they first came out, the USTA and even the ITF, the governing body of tennis internationally that, okay, we're going to have 10 and we're going to have 10 under tennis and there's going to be a 60 foot court. So if you have a green surface, you're going to have light green lines. It's going to be, you know, blurred in, blended in is the word. And, but you know, you go to a gymnasium and there's all these lines, there's badminton, there's volleyball, there's basketball, there's all these lines. And what Braden would say is that if you're a basketball player, you know where your line is. And I think it's true in tennis. I think it's true in tennis. So um, actually the pickleball lines can be a teaching aid for a, for a a tennis pro. Um, But again, Mm -hmm. I I think that, um, you know, I, I, I watch young kids come in and take a lesson for pickleball and they, they can play instantly. And I still think that's, that's the wrong way to do it. Even though they can play instantly, Again, to me, it looks like they're just swinging a fly swatter instead of, okay, just, you know, learn this the right way. And then you'll, you'll enjoy it more because you'll get more balls in play and therefore you get more exercise. And if you do have the competitive spirit, um, the way the brain's programmed, you know, no matter what skill, no matter what sport it is, it takes the brain about 10 minutes to be programmed. So if someone's programmed to do something inefficiently on a pickleball court and they do it for quite some time. It's just like tennis. Um, it would have been much more difficult for you. And you mentioned that, or we both talked about it and made that video for you years ago when you're eight, if we had to try to do that when you were 15, um, Joel Trucker said on our podcast is a 15 year old's told to go to the net for the first time. It's like they're learning a third language because they've never, mm-hmm. they've, they've never been, uh, never been forward. Yeah. yeah, for sure. But to answer your question before I have to hop off soon, yeah, but, yeah. Um, but to answer your question, I, I just think like the hostility between tennis and pickleball is just like, I feel like it's just people like wanting to be upset about something um, as somebody who played tennis and who can kind of sympathize sometimes for what the tennis players are upset about. I think it's just like, just give it a chance. Like same thing for pickleball, just like have respect for each other. Um, like you said, the lines on the court, like, I mean, if you really that upset about it, go pay for a country club and get on a clay court. Like if you're that serious about tennis and you're upset about the lines on a court, um, oh, that's a good but it's point. just like worth a shot. And if you, and if you don't like, if you really tried it and you just don't like it, like that's your opinion and that's great, but you don't have to like be so hostile. Like other people like it, you know, and I'm the same way. Like I have nothing but respect for tennis players. I would never force somebody to try pickleball. I think it's, and I would, and if one of my friends asked me to play tennis and it wasn't around a tournament, I totally would. Like, it's not like a, Oh, I'm pickleball now, you know, it's not like against each other. So I think the hostility is just so unnecessary. Um, And I think that like maybe some experienced tennis successful people who have built tennis, like, I don't know. I think pickleball because of the hostility are trying so hard to not be like tennis. So, um, and a lot of people feel that hostility and don't want to be like tennis, but I think that they're an established like thing. I don't know what's right, but like, I think that like it's causing the future of pickleball, maybe to just like not even want to be developed like it 
or I don't know. It's just a weird, it's a weird talking point, but I think it's a very valid question that needs to be asked and talked about. No, I think that's a great point to end on hostility is a great word for it. And I, I think of skiers and snowboarders, they've worked it out. And I I think that's what tennis, tennis people and pickleball people need to do. My comment would be, and we'll follow up and, and, and put a few things on our Facebook post how you play tennis, how you play pickleball, you can see the tennis, you can see the fundamentals. Yeah. And, and then people like yourself who spent so many years with it, you can just see it. And it's, it should be in any sport, fundamental skill acquisition, but, uh, yeah. Rohrbacher love yelling that name. There's a guy I worked with Mike Carter, his last name, not you have both, both names are so strong, Rachel Rohrbacher, but um, anyway, uh, I'll put some videos up. Uh, people will get a kick out of seeing uh, some videos on our Facebook page that uh, will show you as a young kid learning how to play. But uh, thank you so much. It's great to catch up, and I appreciate your uh, wisdom that you shared with our listeners. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was great to have an official catch up, and I look forward to seeing the videos. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've got to come and catch you uh, at a pickleball match. Yeah, for sure. All right, Rohrbacher, you're the greatest. Adios. Bye. Bye. All right. Podcast 180. Rachel Rohrbacher. Yeah, I did give her a hard time. She was RR, rest and relaxation. I was SS, super sensitive. Um, but with that, uh, yeah, we'll put some things on Facebook, uh, some clips for our, from our course, Tennis Intelligence Applied. But also we'll take some clips of her playing pickleball. And that's where I really think there should be a bridge. Um, and we in tennis, um, yeah, I think, again, hostility, great word to end it on, that if you can play tennis, you can play pickleball. And I tell, I'm telling young people, again, I told these group of high school kids, hey, you know, if you go through this and you do it the right way, right now it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a bonus if you learn tennis the right way that you'll be able to play pickleball. But uh, no, Rachel Rohrbacher, uh, great story. Great story and great person. Uh, Everybody, thanks for listening. And Rachel, thank you. All the best to you, your family. Adios, amigos. 180, we're in the books. 